On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio. Are you ready? And let me, uh, as we launch into this, introduce a couple of words to you. Uh, one of them is the book of Revelation is also known as Chazon or vision. How many of you know John had a vision? He had a couple of visions. Uh, and so we all have an idea of what vision means. But here's the other word Revelation is known as. It is known as heat galut. Now. Uh, I have it in English there for you, as well as in Hebrew. Hebrew is right to left. Now, I was talking to Danny Bengigi uh, at the break here and asking him a little bit better clarification of that word, hitgalut. And one of the things that he said that I thought, you know, it was very, everything Danny says is very fascinating. But uh, this vision that he had, it refers to it as kind of like a progressive revelation. It's just like uh, when this last service I talked about the fullness of the Gentiles means the maturing of the Gentiles. There's a beginning point and then as it grows and grows into the full revelation. Okay, so this book is a book that is progressive. It's not like instant vision. He gets the whole thing. It's more like an unveiling. You see a little at a time and a little more and a little more. And it's kind of like we see through a glass darkly right now. Okay. But the other thing that I thought was very fascinating about this word, it not only is progressive, but it involves response. It's like John sees something and and then, you know, God responds and then John responds and God responds and John responds. It's, It's kind of a combination thing. So not only is it a progressive revelation, but there always brings a response. And I think that, again, goes to God's commandments. He commands is one thing, but what are we supposed to do? Respond. There needs to be response. And any communication, what happens if the other person doesn't speak after you've spoken? You know, do you get it? All right. So anyway, this whole book also involves a response. Now, and then something else that I read also concerning this word, he'd galut, which I thought was kind of interesting, uh, and that one word is the same root word, but galut means exile. And we know that John was in exile on Patmos, but we also know uh, it's Yeshua also was in exile in heaven, wanting to come back to earth. But uh, here's the interesting thing. When you look at uh, the name of this book, it's Revelation, but it's not a revelation of John. It's a revelation through John. When you look at the first verse, it's the revelation of Yeshua HaMashiach. Now, he is, he knew Yeshua. He walked with Yeshua. He was his best friend. But now he's getting a vision of Yeshua from another perspective, which is what we're going to be doing. I think it's interesting, this word, Bamidbar. What, what, how do we know that word? What is it? It's the... No, what's a meat bar in the wilderness? You know how we say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? They don't say that in Hebrew. Genesis is known as what? Breshit, which means in the beginning. So they take a Hebrew word, that's the first part of that verse, and that's what they call the book. So Genesis becomes Breshit because that's the first word of the Bible, and it means in the beginning. Exodus becomes 
Shemot, okay, which is what? These are the names, and that's how Exodus 1 begins. Vayikra, Leviticus, and Vayikra is the Lord calling out to Moses. So Vayikra is the Lord called out. And then the book of Numbers, when we hear numbers, we think of what? Numbers. Okay. But in Hebrew, it's Bamidbar, and it means in the wilderness. And so they'll say Bamidbar, which really is in the wilderness, is where God spoke to Moshe. And then Deuteronomy is called Devarim, which means these are the words. So in English, we say Deuteronomy, and what does that mean to you? Nothing. Okay. I think it comes from the Latin word, which means repetition. But in Hebrew, it's Devarim, which means these are the words that God spoke. So when they say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're really saying, in the beginning, these are the names the Lord called out in the wilderness. And these are his words. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. So we're going to look at the book of Revelation from a whole nother perspective. Now, here again, we're going to go deeper into this word, Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. Well, the last three letters, Devar, is word, okay? And what's interesting, the Dalet symbolizes a door. Well, Bar is also sun as in bar, uh, bar, as in Bar Mitzvah. But what do we see? It's in the wilderness is where we find Yeshua coming through the door. That whole word, Bar, wilderness. We see the words when we want to hear from the Lord, we have to go in the wilderness. How many of you know light pollution blocks the stars? Noise pollution blocks what you can hear. If you want to really see the Lord and hear from the Lord, this very word is telling us we've got to go in the wilderness. And then we'll find the door of Yeshua. Okay, so let's look at Revelation 1, verse 1 and 2. This is the revelation of who? Yeshua, the Messiah which God gave him to show his servants the things which must happen. How? But it's a progressive soon, which he sent and made known by his angel or his messenger to his servant, Yochanan. That's John, God who is gracious, who testified to God's word and of the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah, about everything that he saw. So guess what? We get to take a look at what John or Yochanan saw. Now, we need to know, as I said, Yochanan was Jewish, okay? All he knew was the Tanakh. He didn't have, you know, the New Testament. And in case you're wondering, this book was written. When was the book of Revelation written? Historically, there's always debates about everything. But the vast majority believe it was written around 95. 95, the year 95. Okay, that's when typically they believe it was written. So the temple's been destroyed for 25 years. Okay, all right, but here's how I want to begin. If we really want to understand the revelation of Yeshua, we have to understand the bigger picture. We're going to end up taking the microscopic look, but I want to first start with the macro, the bigger look. To help us understand that we need to see the bigger picture first, and then we'll narrow in. Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and the time to every purpose under heaven. How many purposes? Every purpose. So, why did God create the universe and humanity to begin with? Did he need us? So, first, if we want to understand the end, we got to look at the beginning. He declared the end from the beginning anyway. 
But let's think about this. Why did God create the universe in humanity to begin with? It says there's a purpose for everything. So that means God has a purpose, doesn't it? What was his purpose? Guess what? He wanted to be a part of the story. And he wanted to be discovered by his creation. He loves to play hide and seek. And he loves to be just like Alfred Hitchcock wanted to be in his movie. All the TV shows, Alfred Hitchcock put himself in it. Well, God wanted to create creation and he wanted to become a part of the story and he wanted to be found. He wanted to play hide and seek. Okay. If the world was not created by God and it just happened to be here, then what's the point of asking whether there's any purpose or not to humanity? There would be no purpose. If this was just an accident happened to happen, we really don't have a purpose. There was a decisive reason for creation. Now, how many of us know that the Torah is likened unto water, right? Comes down from heaven. And in Habakkuk 2.14, it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How many know there's a lot of water out there? So God wanted to be known by his creation. There's an ancient midrash, and it says this. God desired a home for himself in the lowest of worlds. Water is likened unto Torah, and water always seeks the lowest place. God is looking for the lowest place. So if you feel like you're at the bottom, guess what? That's where all the water goes. It's okay. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are what? Revealed belong to who? To us and to our children forever. And the whole purpose, what it, remember God created everything for a purpose. Why? What is the purpose? So that we may do all the words of the Torah. Wow. If you throw out the law, if you throw out the Torah, you just thrown away your purpose. And you won't know the secrets that are being revealed. Only if you love the law and desire to do it will biblical revelation come. Now, how many of you know you don't start a book or a movie in the middle of it? If you want to clearly understand the end of the book, where do you have to start? At the beginning. You cannot understand the revelation of Yeshua without an understanding of Yeshua in the Tanakh. Because it's a full revelation of Yeshua. On the road to Emmaus, when he opened up the Torah, he was showing him in the Torah. That's how we need to see it. We need to see the revelation of Yeshua in Genesis. Do you know all of the main themes of from the Tanakh converge together in the book of Revelation? We see the biblical requirements for the king, Messiah. And keeping true to the scriptures, what verses do the Jews use to describe their Messiah and what will be accomplished? Well, one of the things they say is the Messiah will reestablish the feast of the Lord. Well, guess what? In the book of Revelation, we find the feast of Rosh Hashanah being fulfilled. We have the judgment of the nations, the great tribulation, final judgment of Satan. We see Yom Kippur in the book of Revelation, the glory of Israel restored, the wedding of the Messiah. We see Sukkot in the book of Revelation, the fulfillment of the Messianic kingdom, the restoration of temple worship, God tabernacling again with mankind. Now, 
Look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 and 17 is where it says it'll come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations who came against Jerusalem every year from year to year, they have to go up and worship the king, the Lord of hosts and keep the feast of tabernacles. And it'll be whoever doesn't come up with the families of the earth to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be what? No rain. Wow. The rain speaks of the Torah. Yeshua is the living Torah. You don't come and worship the living water. You get no water. Also within Judaism, they believe the Messiah will be a military leader. Where does that come from? Back to Zechariah 14. Look at 3 through 4. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. His feet will stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives is going to split in two towards the east and west. There'll be a very great valley. Half the mountain is going to move to the north, half toward the south. But here we see that the Messiah, how many of you know Yeshua didn't come as a military leader? That's why they say he couldn't be the Messiah. Okay, the first time I believe he came as a suffering servant. The second time he's going to come as a military leader. But this is John. How many of you know John read Zechariah? He knew Zechariah. Well, look at Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He does judge. And what else does he do? Okay. So Yochanan, John had read Zechariah. He sees the big battle in Zechariah 14, 16 and 17. He sees in verse three through four. So that becomes part of the vision. We also have the scattering and the regathering of the 12 tribes. Look at Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 67, which is kind of the book of Revelation in the Torah. <clears throat> Here's the promise. The Lord is going to scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. And it says there you're going to serve other gods of wood and stone that neither you nor your fathers have known. And then it says among these nations, you're going to find no respite. There'll be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord's going to give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, a languishing soul. Your life will hang in doubt before you. Night and day you'll be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening. In the evening you'll say, if only it was morning. Because of the dread that your heart will feel and the sight that your eyes shall see. So here we see there's going to be a big scattering on the whole world. But look at Zephaniah 3.20. John also saw the promise. That at that time, I will bring you in. And at that time, when I gather you together, for I will make your renowned and praise among all the people of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So John read about the scattering. He also read about the regathering and how God's going to restore their fortunes. As a matter of fact, how many of you believe he read the book of Isaiah? He read a lot of Isaiah. You see a lot of Isaiah in the book of Revelation. Look at this. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So again, he's also reading how God's going to regather Israel again. And look at Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So he's seeing the regathering of Israel. He's seeing the sealing of Israel. As a matter of fact, look at Revelation. This is chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. 
He carries me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he shows me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. There was a wall that's great and high, which had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and the names written were Catholic and Baptist and Episcopal. No, that's not what it says. The 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So we see in the beginning, the promised scattering of all of Israel. And then we also see in Isaiah, the regathering of all of Israel. And at the end of Revelation, we see all of Israel is gathered and Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And there's the 12 tribes of the children of Israel are the gates. Now, what else does John read? What else does he ingested in his life of reading? He reads how there will be no war. Look at Isaiah 2.4. God is going to judge between the nations. He's going to decide disputes for many people. And they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against a nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What's going to happen to the great war complex that's out there? <clears throat> They're in trouble. And he's, I mean, I can't also help but think of the judging between the nations in the Gospels about the separating of the sheep and the goats. Those are nations, not people. He separate. But look at Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. John also read, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God is going to wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he's going to take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his Yeshua. Now think about this. It says that he's going to wipe away tears from all faces, doesn't it? Hmm. Well, look what we see in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Well, where do you think he got that in Revelation? From Isaiah. God is using what he already has. This just reminds me, again, I don't know, most of you have probably heard the story. Some of you may not have heard the story. But the one time when I had a gun at my head, okay, I was only about 21 years old, something like that. I was managing a Payless shoe store, volume shoe store. And it was three in the afternoon, the middle of the day. And how many of you know in the middle of the day, I mean, it was in a strip center with a Kmart and a Chinese restaurant and all these things. And you know, in these strip centers, they have all big glass windows so everyone can see in. And the cash registers are always right by that front window, right? Well, I'm in a long, narrow store. It's not a short, wide store like this. It was a long, narrow store. And I'm way in the back with the front window, three in the afternoon, everybody walking by front. And I'm on the phone with my boss and I hear the door ding and it's, you know, it's self-service, so he let the person look. Well, the next thing I know, he had walked the perimeter of the store, and he comes to the back room, and he, my phone, the phone in the back room is right next to the entrance to the back room, and he puts the gun right at my head. Get off the phone! 
And I go, Larry, I gotta go. And he goes, are you being robbed? Well, I knew the guy heard him yell, are you being robbed? And the guy looked at me and he said, I said, get off the phone. I go, goodbye, Larry. And I hang up. He immediately tries to call back and the guy says, don't answer that. Okay. He goes, let's go up front. So we start going up front and he goes, hurry up. So I start hurrying up and then he goes, slow down. And I go, make up your mind. The cash register is kind of, it's a wooden frame. It's U-shaped. Okay. So here it's U-shaped here. The front door is like where this is with just a little walkway. And he's behind the counter here and he throws a bag by the cash register, right? Well, it's three in the afternoon. People are walking by. I'd never been robbed before. I get behind the counter and I put my hands up. He goes, get your hands down, stupid. I go, I've never been robbed before. What do you want? And, and so I put the money from the cash register into the bag. But instead of handing it to him over the register, I go like this. Because I want him to come around and grab the bag and get the heck out of here. But what did he do? He comes around, he grabs the bag, walks behind me, puts the gun at the back of my head and says, we're going back to the back room. Oh, this is not a good sign. And I'm, I'm trying to think, okay, fight or flight. You know, I'm close to the front door. Is the guy drunk? Is he on drugs? Is he a professional? What are my odds? I mean, this is what is running through my mind. And I've only been saved about two years. I didn't know the Bible hardly at all. I mean, race is a Catholic. You don't even study the Bible. You know, then I've been saved for a couple years, and uh, I thought Hebrews was in the Old Testament. You know, I mean, I just really didn't know the Bible. But they always tell you to read what? Proverbs and Psalms. Well, here's the whole thing. I had read Proverbs and Psalms. I at least had done that. We're headed to the back room, and I'm going to bring up a, a Bible verse I'm going to share with you. It just blew me away. Okay. As we're headed to the back room... His next words were laid down face on the floor. I'm thinking the old bullet in the back of the head trick, you know. So, I mean, that's where my mind is going. Out of nowhere comes a voice. It's not an audible voice that he could hear, but I knew it was from the Lord. Why? Because it's not where I was going. My mind is, oh, no. Here he goes, lay down, face on the floor. And because I had read Proverbs, you don't need to memorize scripture. Just read it. Because if it's in, God can pull it out. And out of nowhere, when he says, lay down, face on the floor. In Proverbs 3, verse 25, the Lord says to me, be not afraid of sudden fear. Neither of the desolation of the wicked when it comes. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Now, it's like, how is that going to come if I haven't put it in? And so my point with the book of Revelation, John had put the Tanakh in. And so God is pulling from the Tanakh and taking it out. This is why you can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the over 600 references back to the Tanakh. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Genesis, oh, what? Oh, so you want to know if they got the guy. Okay, well, first off, when I laid down, you know, he goes, don't try nothing funny. And he turns and he bolts and runs out the front door. I think he just didn't want me to see what kind of car he got in. 
you know, but it was, they never did catch the guy at all. As a matter of fact, my boss had called 911 and they said, how do you know he's being robbed? Did he say he's being robbed? And they didn't send anybody until I called, which was very frustrating. Uh, and then when they come out, the policeman says, did he have a pistol or a revolver? I don't know. It was big and right there. You know, I, I don't know the difference. You know, they had to explain to me the difference between the two, you know. But uh, they probably wanted to make sure that I didn't steal it and was trying to hide it. I mean, the guy only got like a hundred bucks. So, but anyway, moving on. Okay. In Genesis, you have paradise lost. And in Revelation, you have paradise regained. Look at Isaiah 2, 17 through 19. It says, the haughtiness of man will be humbled. The lofty pride of men will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols are going to utterly pass away. The people, look at this. This is Isaiah 2. The people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Well, guess what John sees in the book of Revelation chapter 6 verse 15 through 17. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves where? In the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Where do you think John got that from? Isaiah 2, 17 through 19. I mean, all through the book of Revelation, and we're going to go verse by verse, and you're going to see all the connections. And so that's going to help us better understand Revelation when we make the connection. Uh, here, the Torah is supposed to be magnified, to have its honor restored, and be taught to all the nations as they come up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world. Right now, Jerusalem can't even be the capital of Israel without everyone being upset. Um, look at Micah. Chapter 4, this is verse 1 and 2. It says, but in the last days, it'll come to pass. The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established in Argentina. No. In the top of the mountains, and it'll be exalted above the hills. All the people are going to flow to it. Many nations, many nations are going to come and they're going to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways. Wow, that's what we're going to learn. Torah. We're going to walk in his path. For the Torah is going to go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, what do we see in Revelation 21, 23 through 26? The city of Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world. It has no need for the sun. There is a sun. It just doesn't have a need for the sun. Neither of the moon to shine because the glory of God lightens it. The lamb is the light. The nations of them which are saved will walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth are going to bring what all their glory and honor to it. That's what we were reading about in Isaiah. All the riches are going to come to Jerusalem. And then it says the gates, it will not be shut at all by day, for there's not even a night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So here we're reading Isaiah, how the basically all of the wealth of the nations is coming, and we read here that that is exactly what's going to happen in Revelation. We also know there's to be supernatural peace in the land of Israel. How many know Israel has not had much peace in its history? Look at Isaiah 11:6, and it's not the lion, but the wolf that will lay down with the lamb. 
The leopard is going to lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and little child is going to lead them all. That is supernatural peace. As a matter of fact, in verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's just like what we read in Habakkuk. So here we see there's to be a supernatural peace. Well, how many know that's what happens in the book of Revelation? Look at 21, 6 through 8. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the, actually, it's the Aleph and the Tav. The beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcomes is going to inherit all things. I will be his God. He'll be my son. But look what happens. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So in other words, he's going to clean out all the garbage and we're going to have peace on earth. That's exactly what's going to happen. So, I mean, John read Isaiah eleven nine and eleven six. He's reading Isaiah and he, and he sees, wow, there's going to be peace. Guess what? Non-Jews will also be welcome to live in the land of Israel and enjoy the temple. That's exactly right. Look at Ezekiel 47, 21 through 23. So shall you divide this land unto you according to the tribes of Israel. Remember how many gates are there? And they're named after the... And look at this. The land is divided according to the tribes of Israel. But look what happens. It'll come to pass that you should divide it by a lot for an inheritance unto you and to the strangers that sojourn among you, which shall beget children among you. And they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it'll come to pass in whatever tribal land they sojourn in, the stranger, there shall you give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. And they will go through the gate of the tribe that they're dwelling in. Yahoo is right. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And they're singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and open the seals, for you were slain and purchased to God with your blood, men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and made them to be unto our God a kingdom of priests, and they reign upon the earth. Wow. So uh, everything that we're reading in Revelation is coming from the Old Testament. Look at Revelation 22, 3 and 5. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will serve him. They'll see his face. That's heavy. And his name shall be in their foreheads. Not a number. The Antichrist wants to treat you like a number, but God gives you his name. There'll be no night. No need for a candle or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, something else I want to show you. How many of you heard of a chiasm? Okay, it's like where things, you know, on opposite ends, and they come together, and they hit the highlight. Well, I want you to look at this. As we look at the book of Revelation, you're going to find it is written in a chiastic structure. In the first chapter... What do we have? We have an opening and a hello. I am the Aleph Tav. I am the one who's coming in Revelation chapter 1 verse 8. Well, what do we find in the last chapter, 22? We have the closing and the farewell from the Aleph Tav saying, I'm the one who's coming in Revelation 22, 12 and 13. So you see the same thing repeated at the end of the book. And then as we come together, look what we're going to find. 
in chapter 2 and 3, you have seven distinct assemblies, the seven churches. Well, guess what? In Revelation 21, they become one. It's the bride. One bride. Not seven assemblies, but they become one. We have the bride. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we have a heavenly or a celestial vision of a throne, 24 elders and four beasts. Well, guess what? In chapter 19 through 20, you have another heavenly vision with a throne, the 24 elders and four beasts. It's repeated. And then what happens? In chapter 6 through 9, we have the seven seals. The 144,000 are sealed. We have seven trumpets and the rebellion taking place. Well, in chapter 14 through 18, we have seven plagues. We have the song of the lamb with the 144,000 and all else. And we have seven vials and the rebellion takes place. And then what do we have? In chapter 10 and 11, we have an angel and two witnesses. Well, in chapter 13, we have a dragon and two beasts. Do you see how everything is coming together? So what is the focus? What is the main thing? Is chapter 12? Which is the woman, the man-child, and the dragon. That seems to be the focal point of the book of Revelation when you look at it at a chiastic structure. So that's how we're going to kind of be looking at it as we go through. Now, I have some verses that aren't on your notes. You can write down. When it comes to this woman, the man-child, and the dragon, uh, Revelation twelve seventeen, it says how the dragon was furious with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. To me, that is the core of the whole book of Revelation. That is the verse, I believe, in chapter 12, that everything comes down to. The whole focal point of the book of Revelation is you have the dragon, you have the bride, you have... Uh, the man-child who's taken up, and then they make war with the remnant of her seed. And who are they? They are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. Okay, what do we have? We have Christians who have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah, but don't keep the commandments. We have a lot of Jews who keep the commandments, but don't have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. The whole thing is when everything comes together, when we do both, we keep the commandments and we have the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, what's interesting, again, is it makes war with the remnant of her seed. Wait a minute. The man has the seed, not the woman. Look at Genesis 3.15, which isn't on your notes. See, again, Revelation comes from Genesis. It connects. I will put enmity, he's speaking to Eve, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It'll bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what do we see in the beginning? We see this enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, which is fascinating. But then we also see in Revelation, the dragon is going after her seed at the end. And guess what? Her seed bruises the serpent's head. Look at Malachi. Write this verse down. Chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. God promises, You shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day, in the day I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant. 
Again, everyone knows about Elijah coming back in Malachi. But the whole point of Elijah coming, he says, but remember the Torah, the law of Moses. Do you see why Satan wants the church to not love or want anything to do with the law of Moses? Because that's, that's where we're headed now. Look at this. How many of you know in the book of Revelation, the number seven is very significant? Okay. What do we know? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he's also seized from his own works as God did from his. The number seven has to do with the rest, doesn't it? The number seven has to do with the Sabbath, the seventh day. The seventh year is the Shemitah year. Seven times seven is 49, then the year of Jubilee. Well, guess what? We have the number seven all through the book of Revelation. We have seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven golden bulls, seven hills, seven kings. Sounds very Jewish. As in the seventh day Sabbath, the seven years, the Shemitah year, the Jubilee year. uh, Symbolically, the number seven stands for completeness. Okay, so this is why we need to, before we start, and we're going to actually start the book of Revelation this next week. I just want to give you an intro to how Jewish this book is. And this is why, now for those live streaming and for those here who didn't get a copy of those notes... They're online for free. You can, if you have a printer at home, you can just print them out and follow along with us. Now, so starting next week, I go verse by verse through all 22 chapters and show you every verse where the references are in the Old Testament. There's over 600 references. But what I'm going to be doing as we go through this, this way you can kind of look ahead every week at when you see the chapter. We'll probably cover like one, maybe two chapters a week. But this is probably going to take us all year. Because of all the different references that we're going to be attaching to. Because when you see the book of Revelation, I want you to see it through the Jewish lens. Okay? Because that's who it was written to. Uh, see, this is the problem. The word church. Let me see what time. Do I have some time? I got a little bit of time. <clears throat> I mean, did you know there were no churches in the New Testament? You may say, what? There were no churches in the New Testament? There were only assemblies. Okay, the word church wasn't even in the Bible until 1600 years later. All right, these were assemblies. Uh, how many of you know there is an anti-Semitic bias in the church? Okay, let me give you a quick example. In the New Testament where it says, uh, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. What is the Greek word for church there? Ecclesia. Ecclesia did not mean church. It meant assembly. Do you know a Seahawks football game is an ecclesia? It's just an assembly. But what did the translators do when the English Bible came out? They wanted to create something separate from the synagogue. How many of you heard of the Septuagint? When was it written? Around 200 BC, let's say 150 to 250, somewhere in there. How many churches were there then? Well, guess what? The word ecclesia appears over a hundred times in the Tanakh, okay? But they wanted to create something different from the synagogue, so they called it church. Well, guess what? When you go to the book of Acts, chapter 19, do you remember when they were all worshiping the great goddess Diana for three hours? 
At the end of chapter 19 there of Acts, it says, and then they dismissed the assembly. Well, guess what? The word was ecclesia. How come they didn't put church there? Whoops, because we don't want them to think the church was worshiping Diana. So how many believe there's bias in the media? Well, there was bias in the translators. So they took ecclesia and calls it church when they want to call it church. And they call it assembly when they want to call it assembly. Same thing with synagogue. The Greek word is synagogue. Synagogue meant assembly. They were synonyms. Okay, well, guess what? How many have heard in the book of James, which is really Jacob? It says, if one comes into your assembly with a gold ring, you know, fancy apparel. You know what? The word there is synagogue. But they don't want to put synagogue, or then they'll think people were meeting in a synagogue. So they correct, they changed it to assembly. But if you want to know, it was synagogue. They were meeting in synagogues. But in Revelation, you're going to find about those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Well, guess what? The Greek word synagogue. How come they didn't put assembly of Satan there? Ooh, now we want to equate the synagogue with Satan. So they will pick and choose. What, when synagogue will be synagogue or assembly, they will pick and choose when ecclesia will be church or assembly. So what we're going to do is look at the book of Revelation from a non-biased view and look at it from a perspective that John had. Because John was Jewish. And he read the Tanakh and everything in Revelation he's pulling from the Tanakh. And we've got to connect the dots together. Are you ready? Then come back next Shabbat. Let's stand. It's going to be fun, I'm telling you. This book of Revelation, I'm even discovering more. Oh, I was going to say, on that chart, you're going to find there may be some verses I skip, and I may be adding verses as I go. So it's a work in progress. I believe there's many more verses. Well, matter of fact, I know. Uh, one of the verses in Revelation, there's over 80 verses that connect to that verse. One verse. But I, I'm not going to give you all 80 references. So I already know there's a whole lot more. Uh, some of them are an indirect reference. Some of them are a direct reference. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, we just thank you so much for your Torah. We thank you that you gave a Yochanan from all of the prophets of the Tanakh a revelation, a vision, a progressive revelation of what's to come. And Father, I pray that we would be able to understand it from your perspective. In Yeshua's name, amen. Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild, Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Hi, welcome to our new channel. Let's give you a peek to what's behind the scenes of Solace Radio. Solace Radio began in 2007 on an extremely popular internet radio platform including iTunes. We felt it was time to upgrade. Running through a massive amount of independent networks and servers, Solace Radio continued streaming on the internet with Apple, plus TuneIn and hundreds of other online radio directories till 2022. After 15 years and 135 countries reached we realized something was still missing. We spent months and years putting our prayers before Adonai to guide us in the right direction. In May of 2022 we began once again looking for additional avenues to broadcast the word of Yeshua to the world. Our prayers were answered in the late spring of 2022. Podcasting podcasting our programs and teachers to over 135 countries. Those who may not have heard the words of the Torah or the Bible. Looking at hundreds of podcasting platforms, we chose Podbean, not only for their excellent platform, but also their great statistics. God's hand has always been guiding Solace Radio. 
from the programs and teachers who broadcast the words of the Old Testament to the New Testament. When I started studying Torah, it just made me feel like I had come home. I had spent my life, raised my kids in, in uh, different churches. When I went to church, we were there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, just about. Sang in the choir, had my kids involved in the church activities, in vacation Bible school, and the choirs, a handbell choir. But there was something missing. I always felt there was something missing. And when I discovered Torah, I felt like, I mean, I cried. I felt like I had come home, that I had finally found the right path. Because I believe in the Savior. I believe He lived, He taught, He died for us, He rose again, and He will return. But there was a lot missing. What was missing was Torah, the deeper understanding of the Holy Scriptures. Solace Radio staff consists of only two staff members. Every teacher we broadcast is tested by God Adonai and us to make sure the word is true. Sometimes it takes us months of listening to determine if the program or teacher is a good fit. We will not broadcast the word of Adonai or Yeshua for money. The Torah and the Bible are not for sale. Our goal is to reach one heart at a time, to change lives and reveal what your ears could not hear. Just as a river will meander and find its way back to the sea, many of us find our way back to Torah. Digital Broadcast Operations Manager and Program Director, Eric St. James. My grandfather was a staunch reader of the Bible, uh, very, uh, very direct in his faith. He spent a lot of time in Louisville, Kentucky in the summers and spent a lot of time there with my grandparents. Originally, I was baptized as a Congregationalist. Uh, it's uh, one of the many gazillion denominations out there. Uh, it's a Congregationalist. Faith. I went to church every Sunday. I wore the perennial black dress slacks in the white long sleeve shirt with a with a tie involved with the American Baptist segment of the church and I followed the American Baptist for years and years and years. I spent the time in the churches, in the fellowships, in the in the new member fellowships. As I grew up I went to the youth camp. My grandmother and grandfather would hit the church at like seven in the morning. So I mean I I started the church at seven in the morning and I wouldn't get home until probably 3.34 in the afternoon. Read the Bible consistently, and and I read in both the Old and New Testament as much as I could, because I'm, I'm a huge book reader. I, I love to soak up information. So it, to me, it was the most phenomenal book I had ever read, and I couldn't get enough of it. But as I got older, I began to realize that there was a lot more involved in the denominations that I didn't want to be a part of. I didn't feel like I was whole. There were times where uh, I, I I would pray uh, and I was I was hollow and I wasn't really fulfilled. And that was going to church every Sunday. And we did everything that we were supposed to do. But there was that huge void 
of not really knowing what was all behind it. When I discovered Solace Radio, it was like a giant opening of the clouds. And it was an amazing feeling to know that I actually had it all wrong. As I began learning about the Torah, I began to realize that I was coming home and that there really was a true meaning to everything that I thought I I had learned. We're not a giggly fluffy like station wanting to be like the world. We don't charge teachers to run their programs since we began in 2007. We've never charged anything to air programs and teachers. We do this because we want to be obedient to the Lord by loving our brothers and sisters, both teachers and listeners, allowing anyone who teaches the true word to reach the worldwide audience that have found us in 15 years of being on the air. Solace Radio is your congregation without walls. Studies of the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament plus the New Testament. Studies of the prophets, prophecy and end times events. Word studies that open up understanding on a deeper level. World events and how it relates to Yeshua's word and biblical prophecy. Yeshua, Jesus, is our risen Savior and means of our salvation. We pray you are blessed by our teachings. For more info visit solaceradio.org. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua, the rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. We are continuing in our series through the book of Daniel this morning, a series entitled Living in Babylon. And uh, the title of the message this morning is Even Though You Knew. And we're looking at Daniel chapter 5, Even Though You Knew. As we come to Daniel chapter 5, we have just witnessed the most significant mir- miracle, in my estimation, in the book of Daniel. And not the most, like, uh, you know, memorable miracle to most people, but the most significant miracle, because it's the very heart of God. King Nebuchadnezzar... The King Nebuchadnezzar has submitted himself to the God of Israel. He has unequivocally blessed, praised, honored, and exalted who he calls the Most High God, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, whose dominion endures from generation to generation. He declares of the Lord that all of his works are right and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This declaration, these aren't, these are not empty words from Nebuchadnezzar. This was an expression of genuine praise that was formed as a result of complete and total brokenness. None of this happened quickly or easily in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. When the story began in exile, Nebuchadnezzar knew nothing of Israel's God. For centuries, God had been calling the people of Israel to walk in obedience to him, to walk in submission to him. When they walked in sin, he patiently and graciously called for them to return, return, shuvah, return. But they ignored him. He gave them signs and wonders. He sent prophets declaring his word, bringing warning, return to me or the consequences will come. And yet, as a whole, the nation ignored the prophets, killed the prophets sometimes, persecuted those who spoke truth rather than telling them what they wanted to hear. They had the very word of God, and yet they were walking in ongoing rebellion against him. And so God said, enough. And he chose this crazy Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, to be his instrument of discipline. And the Lord had said of Nebuchadnezzar, this guy's, I mean, his God is his own strength. 
and his soul is not right within him. He's messed up. And right from the beginning of the book of Daniel, as we, uh, we get the sense that something's off with Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, the book be- begins, and we see Nebuchadnezzar is this kind of crazy, villainous king. He's unpredictable, he's volatile, he's murderous, arbitrary. But as we read, we're kind of... He's, he's there, this king that's kind of nuts, and, but he's not the story we're focused on. We're, we're focused on God working in the midst of his people, in the midst of Babylon. Will these young Jewish boys that the Babylonians have ripped away from their homes, brought to this foreign place, impose new names and identities upon them, and, and now with a plan to reshape them in the Babylonian way, will these boys be able to stand and be faithful? Our focus is on their faithfulness and on the God who is not confined to, uh, to the land of Israel, but he is the God of the heavens and he is the God of, of the universe and there is, he is everywhere and at work. And even when it seems that he's not in charge, he's in charge, and he's working. This week, I was playing, I have, I have two kind of chess nemeses. Um, they're nine and 11 years old. Uh, uh, Nathan, Nathan and Benjamin Osuna will come over, and we will play chess, and, and they are formidable opponents. And so... <clears throat> Benjamin, 11-year-old, my 11-year-old nemesis this week, we sat down to play chess together, and he was intent on defeating me. And we began playing, and, and he made this uncharacteristically sloppy move. He left, he left his rook wide open, and like for, for the taking. I mean, my, with my knight, I would trade my knight for the rook. Hey, you, I'll kill your rook, you kill my knight. I win. But I could kill the rook with no consequences. And I go, bam. And with delight, take the rook. <laughs> now, what I'm expecting him to do at this moment is what he'll do sometimes when things like that happen is to drop his head and be like, ah. Like, how did I not see that? But he didn't drop his head. He very quickly took his queen and went, checkmate. (laughs) And I dropped my head. (laughs) The whole time, I'm focused on that rook. Look at that. And he's got a whole different thing going on over here. That it's, I'm just salivating over the rook, so I'm not paying attention. Oh, he's about to finish me. Finish him. You know, he's just... It, it's just about to happen. And, uh, and that's... We're reading through the book of Daniel, and we're focused on ah, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and everything. Wow, that's amazing. And then you get to last week, and he goes... And the Lord says, oh, by the way, I'm doing this with the king, checkmate. And you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? I wasn't, I didn't see that coming. It was this incredible, the, the God doing something that we're not focused on. We, we, we're in our world, we'll see all these things happen. We're like, what's going on? I don't know. And God goes, I got this. I got, I, he, like, I, he, he, he multitasks, right? I mean, he does a lot. 
he does a lot all at the same time. And this morning, in fact, I, this morning I, I was teaching in Midrash, and I kept going on my, I have to turn down the temperature on my phone, but I kept going to do it and then distracting myself by talking. <laughs> and I kept not doing it because I can't do two things at once. And the Lord totally can and does. And just because it doesn't seem like he's doing something with, you know, he can. He can, he can be working to form something, form, to transform his children in the brokenness of exile, and in the midst of that, be working to form and transform the person who has brought them into exile, to transform their enemies. And it's not a contradiction for him. He can take care of all of it. Eventually, uh, so, so through these weeks, you know, we've had this, the Lord has been reaching out to Nebuchadnezzar. He's given him dreams. He's revealed the meanings of those dreams in miraculous ways. In front of Nebuchadnezzar's very own eyes, the Lord delivered Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And again, Nebuchadnezzar was completely, completely pagan. Completely coming in unaware of anything about the God of Israel other than he had just defeated the people who say this guy is God and had just destroyed his temple. So he's like, whatever he is, I'm bigger. Well, God is going to be able to deliver you from my hands. That was his, that was his view. He was completely devoid of the knowledge of the true God when this began. But here, and here in Daniel chapter five, Daniel recalls what Nebuchadnezzar was like when this king who strengthens his own God, whose soul isn't right within him, uh, when things began, Daniel says here in verse 19, he says, all the peoples, nations, and languages dreaded and feared him. He killed whomever he wanted and spared anyone he wanted. He raised up whomever he wished and humbled anyone he wished. And eventually last week we saw that the Lord brought down the hammer of transformation in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar was warned about a coming judgment in his own life where he'd basically wander the fields like an animal and, uh, and eat like an animal and all of that kind of stuff until he finally would humble himself and acknowledge, truly acknowledge, not just with his words but with his life, with his heart, truly acknowledge God is sovereign, that God is, that, that God is king. And chapter 4 ended with this, this stunning checkmate. During the whole time that God was working to transform his people, he shocked everyone and everything by performing an unexpected miracle of brokenness, bringing transformation in the heart of a king that no one ever thought would change or could change. Now when we come to chapter 5, there's a significant time gap between chapters 4 and 5. Nebuchadnezzar's prayer and worship at the end of chapter 4 is the last we hear from him or of him. Well, from him, because in chapter 5, he's referred to as well. When we get to chapter 5, we meet a new Babylonian king named Belshazzar, or Belsa-Usur. And we will be surprised to find that we have fast-forwarded now to the last night of the Babylonian empire. Chapter 5 is the last night of the Babylonian reign. King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BCE, around 47 years after the exile had begun. So at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's death, Daniel's 60 years old, give or take. 
after Nebuchadnezzar's death, there's a succession of kings in Babylon. Most of them experienced untimely deaths. You have one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons who was assassinated by his brother, and another was killed in battle, and then another of his sons, Nabodinus, uh, or Nabonidus, was captured. Uh, he was in war with the, Median, the Medes and Persians, and he was ca- taken into captivity and spent a decade as a prisoner of war. So while while Nabonidus is still king and captive, his son, his son is Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, becomes co-regent. That they are kings together, he's just in place of his father while his father is in captivity. Um, interestingly, I, this is as a side note, for most of history, there, there was for nearly, I mean for thousands of years really, there was a couple thousand years, there was no archaeological evidence that had been discovered um, that to affirm Belshazzar's existence. And so some people considered that this was a, a biblical error and that the Bible understandings of history was wrong, and so they said the Bible's inaccurate. There were people who s- spoke that. But during the 19th century, there was a discovery uh, where they were able to, they discovered and deciphered ancient cuneiform tablets which shed light on this period of time, showing that Belshazzar had royal dignity bestowed upon him in the third year of his father's reign, and that he, and so Belshazzar emerged from history's shadow um, as a as an actual historical figure. So for years, we were, there were those that were so smart and so enlightened, going, "Look, there's not even any real uh, understanding that there was ever a Belshazzar." And look, just because it hasn't been found yet doesn't mean it's there. And and archaeology keeps affirming and confirming the accuracy of the Bible. It, it keeps tearing down all of these things, these, these, the brilliant arguments of these people who keep trying to um, disqualify the accuracy of Scripture. So anyway, so there is now abundant historical attestation to the fact that there was a Belshazzar who was king and he was the son of Nabonidus. Uh, so as we begin in Daniel chapter 5 this morning, the first thing that we're going to see is that the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, is, has a false security and confidence that is defiant of God. He has a false security and a confidence that is defiant of God. In, in, uh, in Jan- Daniel chapter 5, there, there is extra, or outside of Daniel chapter 5, there's extra biblical historical sources. There are Babylonian ancient historical sources and Greek historical sources that give us more information about the event that occurred leading up to this night, to this fall of Babylon, which was in our calendar, we would have said it was October 12th, uh, 539 BCE. Uh, the Greek sources, you have Herodotus and Xenophon, indicate that the final raid of Babylon took place during a nighttime banquet. The ancient historian Xenophon, who wrote of the taking of Babylon, suggests that the city was magnificently well protected against a siege and had stores of food that would last for years. So the, the, the Persians and the Medes are, toge- are together coming. They're coming. But there's no worry for Babylon The walls of Babylon were a square, 14 miles on each side. The walls were 300 feet high, 25 feet thick. That's the first wall. (laughs) Then there's a second wall that's 75 feet high and goes 30 feet deep underground as well. So don't think about trying to dig under. They are, forget about it. They're protected. But what are you going to do if there's a siege and the city's surrounded? What about water? Well, the, river, the Euphrates River flows through the middle of the city. 
and they've got these drawbridges and everything's protected. So, and they've got stores of food. So they basically say, look, lock the doors. You know, it's an ice storm or whatever we do. You know, it's like, you know, we used to, we loved ice storms because we just stay in uh, snowstorms. Anyway, just lock the doors. We're just going to hang out and party. We're just going to relax. They can't get us. And so they're just going to enjoy, have a movie night, rent a bunch of movies, you know, Netflix binging. <laughs> Except they're going to be binging on other things here. The, uh, the Babylonian uh, cuneiform indicates that just a couple of days earlier that uh, Cyrus, the Persian, had defeated the Babylonian army about 50 miles away from the capital. And so from the, oh, they, they had towers. They had, they had uh, how many they had 250 towers that were 450 feet high with no elevators. Can you imagine? I mean, you're like, oh, I hope, you're like, it's tower duty. I mean, how long <laughs> to get to the top? And then you're like, oh, I drank too much coffee. <laughs> I mean, I, that, that's, what, I, that's my thought. I was like, what do they do? You know, anyway, but from those, it's true. <laughs> From those towers, they would have had some sense that, you know, they could see what was coming. So on either, they knew that this this siege was coming. So either on October 11th or October 12th, 539, Belshazzar throws a party, and perhaps to project confidence. Hey, everybody, don't worry. Don't worry. They can't do anything. In fact, I'm so not afraid. I'm so confident that, you know, we're going to have a party tonight. I mean, big party. So verse 1, King Belshazzar held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles and was drinking wine in front of the 1,000. If there are 1,000 nobles in attendance, then the actual number, number of people present would have far exceeded that when you think about the attendants and the servers and the guests and the wives and the concubines and other officials. Archaeologists have unearthed this hall, and it's 52 feet by 170 feet. So it is 9,000 square feet, basically, hall. It's full. Verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he issued an order to bring in the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his consorts and his concubines could drink from them. Now, the Aramaic word for tasted here is the same word that's used in uh in Ezra, excuse me, it's the same word that Daniel used in Daniel chapter 2, verse 14, when it talked about counsel and discretion. So basically, under the counsel of the wine, when he tasted the wine, under the advice of the wine, okay, so he is influenced by the wine here. He makes this decision to issue an order to bring in the gold and silver cups that Nebuchadnezzar has had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, some people go, oh, well, if he was drunk, then that's not really, he's not really responsible. Well, the thing that the the, the drinking will do is it takes down your, um, your inhibitions, right? So the reality comes forth. So it's not that he's not responsible, it's just that's the real deal, who he is. So let me ask, do you think you ran out of goblets? We've run out of cups. There's just so much drinking. I mean, we've got food for years to come. We've got built walls and towers and a moat. But can you believe we didn't think about cups? We've got a cup shortage. 
Is there anything in storage? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think the, the, those Jewish cups from their temple, we've got... No, that didn't happen, right? They didn't run out of cups. This decision was intentional. This, this was absolutely premeditated. He issues a specific order. I want the goblets that my grandfather brought from the temple in Jerusalem. These are the goblets from the temple of Jerusalem, the God of heaven to whom Nebuchadnezzar had surrendered and submitted. So they brought the gold vessels that were taken out of the temple, verse 3, of the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, consorts and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and they praised the gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Listen, this is not a tame party. This is a hedonistic romp of nobles and consorts and concubines. And having been intentionally ordered to specifically take the holy vessels of the living God and bring them to the party, they use them to toast the lifeless idols of their own false religions. We're going to get to this momentarily, but it's important to recognize that this is the equivalent of Belshazzar showing God his longest finger and with a proud and glaring look, Taunting, what? What are you going to do? This is an intentional rebellion. This brazen, in-your-face, defiant, and challenging of the God of Israel. There is an intentionality behind Belshazzar's act here that is unmistakable. Nebuchadnezzar had his issues. I mean, and so now his grandson does too. So perhaps God's going to give Belshazzar a chance to repent. He gave Nebuchadnezzar all these opportunities. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar got three strikes, right? And he hit a home run on the last one. So perhaps his grandson will too. So here comes strike one, and it's a sobering fastball. Verse 5, at that very moment, the fingers of a human hand emerged and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand so that the king could see the back of the hand that was writing Verse 6, the color drained from the king's face. His thoughts alarmed him. His hips gave way and his knees began knocking together. At the moment of his brazen defiance, the fingers of a human man emerge, hand emerge and begin writing on the wall. Not sure how big the hand was, but I think just seeing the hand alone. (laughs) Like the bodiless hand. Had a sobering effect. We're not sure if everyone saw the hand. We do know that the king saw the hand. We come to, everyone saw the writing because they could read it and couldn't understand it. And the defiant king now is shaking in his Babylonian boots with his knees knocking pale as a sheet. Fear has replaced his confidence. Verse 7, the king called loudly to summon the astrologers, Chaldeans, and the diviners. This is normal territory, right? The king said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around his neck and will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. You know, you'll notice the reference here to the third, as the third ruler in the kingdom, right? because he and his father are one and two, are co-regents. So that's why he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. Continuing in verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription nor tell the king what it meant. 
So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew pale. His nobles were baffled. And we're not, under, we're not sure what language it was in. I mean, well, when Daniel reads it, uh, he reads it, it's in Aramaic, when he says it's in Aramaic. Um, so the question is, it says they couldn't read it. Why couldn't they read it? We, we understand that if they didn't understand its interpretation, but why couldn't they read it? Aramaic was an international language. And so we don't necessarily know, but a lot of different ones have postulated that actually what the, it was written, um, it was written down, and they were, of course, trying to read it from, from right to left. And so when Daniel came in, he saw, he saw it down. So that's a some people postulate that. Others say, no, they could read it. They just didn't know what in the world it meant. I don't know. Uh, but the guys are clueless. Verse 10, the queen, hearing the words of the king and his nobles, entered the banquet hall. The queen spoke out and said, may the king live forever. Do not let your thoughts frighten you or your face be so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. So King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and diviners. There was no word for grandfather, by the way, so your grandfather would still be called. It was just the fathers. Verse 12, this man Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight for interpreting dreams, explaining riddles, and solving problems. Now, let Daniel be summoned, and he will explain the interpretation. So this is the queen, but this is not Belshazzar's wife. Um, she couldn't, she couldn't, his wife could not have just come in and approached the king uninvited um, in, in that culture and in those days. And we see that in the book of Esther with, uh, with uh, Ahasuerus and, and uh, Vashti, and then later with Hadassah, Esther. So, um, so this is likely the queen mother. This is either Nebuchadnezzar's wife, um, or perhaps it's Belshazzar's mother. And she remembers Daniel. Daniel's probably 84, 85 years old now. It's been a while. But she remembers him, and she still refers to him as Daniel. I mean, the king tried to name him, give him a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, but, she, but he's Daniel, meaning God is my judge. And one of the descriptions she gives of him is that he's good at solving problems. Literally, he's good at untying knots, is the, is the phrasing. So verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to Daniel, are you the Daniel who is one of the captives of Judah that my father the king brought from Judah? The king's description here conveys the clear sense that Daniel is retired from his former position, no longer serves among the wise men. Verse 14, I have heard about you, how a spirit of the gods is in you, how there have been found in you insight, discernment, extraordinary wisdom. Just now, the wise men and diviners were brought before me to read this writing and to make its meaning known to me, but they are un un unable to declare its interpretation. However, I have heard that you are able to provide interpretations and to solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the writing and explain to me its meaning, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain around your neck and have the authority to rule as third in the kingdom. Then Dan Daniel answered the king saying, you may keep your gifts for yourself, Give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and tell him its meaning. So first of all, Daniel's clearly in his 80s here. Right? I mean, he's like, I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do with your robe and your gold. And I actually have been in charge in this kingdom and I'm retired. So, no thank you. Uh, but really, he's, he's never been about the gifts. He's always been about being obedient to the Lord, walking uh, in, in, in obedience and speaking forth the truth. That's, and it's never been motivated by rewards. 
He's going to be obedient. He's going to speak the truth, even if it's bad news. No thanks on the gifts. And perhaps he also knows that, well, I, you know, he, he's already able to read it. And perhaps he already knows, I mean, this whole, like, you're third in the kingdom doesn't have a long shelf life. Uh, <laughs> so as we continue, we have the second point. This is the main point. This is the, the point. This is, there's no other point after this. And it's the critical point. We are responsible for what's been revealed to us. We are responsible for what's been made known to us. Before Daniel reads and interprets the handwriting on the wall, he speaks to the king and begins to recall and remind him of God's dealings with his grandfather, with Nebuchadnezzar, with Babylon's greatest king. He begins talking first about what God gave him. His grandfather. God gave this to Nebuchadnezzar. What God bestowed upon Nebuchadnezzar. Just so that you know who's in charge. Verse 18 says, Your majesty, God most high gave your father Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom as well as greatness, glory, and splendor. Because of the grandeur that he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and languages dreaded and feared him. He killed whomever he wanted and spared anyone he wanted. He raised up whomever he wished and humbled anyone he wished. But when his heart became haughty and his spirit hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from among men and his mind became like an animal and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He fed on grass like an ox and his body was damp with the dew of heaven until he recognized that God most high is sovereign over the realm of mankind and that he sets sets up over it whomever he wills. Verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the vessels of his house brought before you, and you and your nobles, your consorts and your concubines, have been drinking wine in them. You have praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. Yet you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your very breath and all your ways. Therefore, the hand was sent from him that wrote this this inscription. Now this is the writing that was inscribed, mini mini tekel uparsin. This is the interpretation of the inscription, meaning God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, they clothed Daniel with purple, but it put a cl- chain of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation about him that he would have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel, I'm I'm trying to picture that. You know, Daniel's like, okay, did you hear what I just said? I don't want your, what am I going to, he's like wearing his bling now. He's like a, he's like an 85 year old Babylonian rapper. There is no indication of any like response to what was just said. He's like, okay, we'll give him the, the, Give him the robe and the gold. I mean, here's your robe and gold. Doesn't he realize the party's over, man? Verse 30, on that very night, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar of the Chaldeans was slain. So Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So Daniel reads the handwriting on the wall, gives the interpretation, meaning, meaning, tekes, paris, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Meaning it means numbered, and it's used in the everyday sense of count. Counted, counted. It's a, a mina was also a coin, 
which is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 45, 12, and Ezra 2, 69, uh, verse 69. And Daniel says, God has, says, meaning, meaning means you've been counted. God has numbered your days and today is the final number. Tekel is the Aramaic, uh, for the Hebrew word shekel, and it means weighed or measured. You have been weighed, measured, and you don't measure up to what God expects or requires of you. And Perez means divided. It means it refers to the value of a half of a mina. So it's divided. Your kingdom will be divided, given to the Persians and Medes. So what? Today? He's going to die today? Doesn't he have a chance to turn and repent? This is it? One strike, you're out? We just met the guy. We just met Belshazzar. I haven't even had a chance to get emotionally connected with him. Where are his warnings? Where are his chances? Nebuchadnezzar had chance after chance after chance. Someone might say, well, that's not fair. God's not fair. They should get equal chances, equal slices. He should get at least one more warning. There are even those who might foolishly point their finger at God and accuse him of being unjust or unfair. And be careful, by the way. Be careful. You know, Paul, when there, Paul says, when we begin to question some of these things, Paul says, who are you thinking, in Romans chapter 9, who are you, oh man? to question God in this way. We can come to God with honest questions that seek to understand, but when we come with a posture of a heart that seeks to challenge him and says, you better explain this to me, mister. I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. My six-year-old walks in front of me and says, Dad, you have some explaining to do. I'm going to go. You need to back out the door, rethink that. On my best day. That's my, that's, I'm, in, I'm imagining best, best me perfect me and reevaluate it may there may be a different louder response as well and i'm just just his dad and older than him this is the eternal god of the universe careful careful just come to him with honor and reverence and respect even so perhaps there's genuine confusion lord i don't understand perhaps you say i don't understand why do you give another shot why did get, Nebuchadnezzar get all these opportunities, not his grandson? The Lord gave Belshazzar at least as many opportunities as he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Huh? How do you figure? Well, after Daniel has recounted the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's amazing transformation, he turned his rebuke directly at Belshazzar, and he gave the answer with these words. He says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. You knew. You knew all this. I just recounted a story to you that you're not, it's not the first time you've heard it. I'm not telling you something you haven't heard. I'm not telling you a story that was a secret. Number one, this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most famous king in the world. I mean, this was a guy who repeatedly made huge public proclamations concerning the God of heaven. You know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't keep things quiet. He was like, a public proclamation to all my kingdoms. You know, I mean, he made things known, number one. Number two, here's grandson. You've been raised on your heritage and on, the, you know, on these stories. You've heard the stories your whole life. You know. You knew all this. And even though you knew, even though you knew, what did you do? When we first met Nebuchadnezzar, he knew zilch about God. He knew nothing about the God of Israel. His sons were there to observe and see and hear, right? 
And perhaps though, because they're already adults when a lot of this takes place, they, it doesn't have the same impact on them. But his grandson, Belshazzar, I mean, kiddo, you've known these stories your whole life. You've heard it for, you've heard it for as long as you can remember. And you rejected what's been told to you. What was the final proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar concerning the, the king of heaven? He says, all his works are right and his ways just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. So what is the proper response to that revelation? Oh, we know this now. He humbled my grand, uh, my proud grandfather. So don't repeat the painful decisions of the generations that have gone before. Learn from them. But that's not what happened. He says, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Had this all just been a bedtime story for Belshazzar? He heard the stories. He knew the stories. But they were just stories. It's as if they didn't apply to him. It had been lived out in front of him. The God of heaven had been revealed to him. And so, therefore, he was not ignorant. We go, we go, I don't want to learn from what God's doing in front of my face or in the lives of others. I'm waiting for you to give me my own miracle. Look, he wasn't ignorant. He wasn't blind like his grandfather had originally been. He knew better. Sure, maybe Belshazzar himself may not have seen the fiery furnace miracle, but he had heard. He had heard about the wonders of the God of heaven. He wasn't oblivious and totally in the dark. He knew, and he was responsible for what he knew. And knowing, what did he do? He issued an order to bring the gold and silver from the temple of Jerusalem, from the God who his grandfather had come to worship. And he straight face defied and challenged him. Knowing everything, he said, you know what? Bring me the vessels from that God's temple. We're going to party with those and we're going to make that God. We're going to drink to our gods and make that God bow before where I'm going to humble that God. That's what he was. He was, there was a defiance, a hardness of heart, an intentionality. There's a difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, between not knowing and knowing. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. You're listening to Solace Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Bill Cloud. I want to welcome you to this audio teaching that we have entitled Prophecies from the Book of Job. Now, in this teaching, what we're going to be doing is looking at certain th- elements of the book, uh, the book of Job and looking at it not as just being a narrative about a man who lived many years ago and who endured incredible testing and come through that testing. But we, we want to look at it with the, the idea that the scripture is multidimensional. And what I mean by that is that it can be understood on various levels. First of all, in reading the book of Job, it is an historical narrative. Um, but we want to look beyond the surface of the text and we want to see that within the story of Job, perhaps the Father is trying to teach us of something about ourselves, you know, on an individual level. But the nature of our study is going to be looking at it uh, collectively. In other words, looking to see if it has something to say to us as believers in this day and age collectively. And specifically, uh, for reasons that will become obvious later, 
specifically those of us who are living here in these United States, who are living in North America, because I believe that the book of Job, or there are certain elements, I should say, of the book of Job have something very important to say to us. And so we're going to be looking at the the historical narrative as actually something, uh, as teaching something um, to those of us who live in the end of the age. Uh, we understand that according to Isaiah 46, 8, 9, and 10, that um, God reveals the end from the beginning. Job is believed to be one of the oldest books of the Bible in that it is, you know, it is recording something that happened uh, long, long, long ago. One of the oldest stories. And so the, the beginning, if you will, uh, in a sense. And so it's going to, again, it's, I believe it's going to teach us something about the end. We're also going to be looking at it um, in that context, uh, but we're also going to be looking at it with this idea that there is something about Job that God realizes, God knows because he created Job. There is something about Job that this uh, that Satan suspects, he, he believes, he sees it as a threat, if you will, and it, it, it is apparent, at least to me, that Job doesn't realize certain things about himself. So in short, there are things that are within Job that he does not recognize, perhaps both good and bad, that the, the testing that he endures brings these things to the surface. He, in the story of Job, we'll see that he expunges those things, those that uh, those those carnal inclinations, you know, to curse the day that he was born, etc., um, those things come to the surface and he in the end realizes that God is just in all of his ways but also I want to, to bring out that uh, there is something else about Job that has to come to the surface and so what I'm saying is this for those of us who are living in the end I believe that certain tests, certain trials will come individually yes but again for the sake of our study collectively that the body will uh, will have to endure um, that is intended to bring to our attention something that the Father already knows, something that was is within us that has been hidden, uh, and I mean that in a good sense. And so now is the time for things that have been re, uh, concealed to be revealed. Now, before we actually read from the book of Job, I want to elaborate a little bit on that particular point. And this is something that uh, we've taught on in other teachings. But there is this concept in the scripture that there are things that have been hidden by the Father that will become revealed. In the very beginning, we see this, and I'm just going to give this as an example for right now. We'll get into it more in more depth a little bit later. But in the very beginning, on the uh, when we see in the book of Genesis, right before the uh, at the very beginning of creation. We see the Spirit of God is hovering or brooding over the face of the deep, that is, the waters, because we understand that initially the world, the earth, was uh, engulfed in water. It was completely covered with water, with the seas. And so this is what the Spirit of God is brooding over in these initial hours of creation. Now we also know that the seas, water, many times is used in scripture to personify the nations or peoples and so in a sense the spirit of God is hovering or brooding over the peoples and then we read in the account of scripture that on the first day of creation God said let there be light and there was light 
The second day he said, Let there be a firmament established in the heavens to divide the waters above from the waters below. And it was so. And then on the third day of creation, we see that um, there were uh, there was God saying, Now let all the seas be gathered into one place, and dry land appeared, and he called that land, that dry land, earth. And then on that third day, we see herb yielding seed, producing grass, trees, producing fruit, etc. And so here's my point. The earth, the dry land, had been concealed beneath the waters, the nations. But on the third day, that is when what had been hidden by the seas, what had been hidden among the nations, if you will, on the third day it began to spring forth. On the third day that which was hidden was made known. And we read in Mark's Gospel chapter 4, the Messiah said, There is nothing that has been hidden that will not be made known. There's nothing that's been secret that it won't be revealed. And when he says that, he's referring to things that God has hidden, that God has kept secret. And so here's my point as we begin this study. There are things that the Father has purposely hidden. There are things that God has concealed. If he conceals them, it is intended that they be revealed. And as we're going to see later on in the teaching, that typically these things that are revealed are done so on the third day. Now, um, I'm going to assume that you're aware of this, but if not, let me point out that it has been 2,000 years approximately since the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. Uh, as we understand it from Scripture, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, meaning that it has been approximately two millennial days since the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. So then, we are at the threshold, if you will, of the third day. So then, what can I expect? I believe that Scripture bears out that at this time in which you and I are living, things that have been kept hidden Things that have been not uh, that have not been known are being revealed. They are being brought out into the open for us to understand, and that can be viewed again individually and collectively. So that's just kind of a, a small introduction of, of what we are trying to uh, bring forth in this teaching. And so, with that, we want to go to the Book of Job. And we're going to read uh, a pretty good amount of scripture here because there's some th certain things that I want to go back and just highlight uh, as we teach on this. But just beginning in, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning of the story, it says, Now, there was a man in the land of Uts, or Oz, but Uts, whose name was Jove. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. So first thing I want you to notice, he was blameless and upright, he feared God, and he shunned evil. Those three major points. And so he had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. This is a very wealthy man, so great in wealth. It says he's the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, that's that's. I'll, I'll suggest to you he's very well known, very, we will we'll presume, uh, influential in, uh, in that part of the world. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, that is, all the sons and all the daughters. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So Job, the one who has accumulated all this wealth, number one, he he has the seven uh the seven sons and and uh, and three daughters. I hope I got that right. Let's make sure I got that right. <laughs> yeah, the seven sons and three daughters. They would go feasting, and he he had reason to believe that in their feasting, that that they may have sinned and they may have cursed God in their hearts. And so Job is rising early every day, or at least consistently, and offering burnt offerings on their behalf. Um, so he has reason to believe that they are using the wealth that he has accumulated and are misappropriating it, using it for the wrong purposes, you know, uh, feasting. Um, I would presume that includes, you know, drinking and, 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 and carrying on, partying, if you will. So he is motivated to rise early and to offer offerings on their behalf in case they have done something that they shouldn't have done. Now, the next verse says, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and, for, going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, that's an interesting statement that infers that when the, when Satan says, I'm going to and fro in the earth, walking back and forth on it, that the reason he's walking back and forth on it is he was, he is looking for someone to, to bring under his, his, his subject, uh, his subjugation. He is looking for someone to, uh, to destroy, if you will, because he goes forth as a roaring lion seeking whom he might destroy. So the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? That there is, here we go again. None like him in the earth. Now that's a very powerful statement if you consider who is saying it. That is the Father. There is none like him on the earth. He is a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And so he makes those statements again. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, you know, he's got reasons to fear you. He's got reasons to serve you. He's got reasons to do this. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And so, you know, the adversary is simply pointing out that, hey, yeah, if he's got everything he wants. You protect him. You watch over him. You sustain him. You provide for him. You bless for him. Why wouldn't he feel that way? But he's, he challenges, this, if you will, the Lord and says, But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord concedes to remove this hedge from his household and from his possessions. It says you can't touch him. But here's, here's what I want to bring out. I want it to, I want this to jump out at you. That the Father has already said there is none like him in the earth. The Father acknowledges there is something about Job that people perhaps around him can't detect. The adversary 
perhaps can't detect it. He detects the hedge. But he thinks that if you remove that hedge, he's going to curse you. But the Father says there is none like him in the earth. He is unique. He is, if you will, special. And so he removes the hedge. And so I'm going to suggest to you here that one of the reasons that he's going to do this, I'm not going to say this is the only reason, but one of the reasons, and I believe the primary reason that he removes the hedge, is he is going to permit the adversary to unleash an attack on Job that the adversary believes will result in Job cursing God. But the Father already knows that there is something about Job that that only the Father knows. And so it's going to do what? It's going to prove to the adversary that he is unique, that there is none like him in the earth. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, I believe it's going to prove it to Job as well. In other words, there is something buried, if you will, concealed, embedded in Job's person that when the father created him or or when the relationship with the father was initiated whenever that was that there was something in Job that nobody but God knew about but that this testing is going to be permitted in order to bring it out I mean by the very fact that the father said have you considered my servant Job it all it's almost as if the father wants Satan to go after Job and if if and I say that very you know uh uh, well, I just want to make sure everybody understands if that's why he did it, if that's why he brought it out. Then I have to come to the conclusion that there was something about Job that that would come out during this testing that the father wanted both the adversary, the world, and even Job himself to see. Now, verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Now I want you to notice that, the Sabaeans. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So immediately after the Sabaeans raid him and come and um, take his livestock, kill his servants, immediately after that, fire comes down out of heaven, burns up the sheep, the servants, takes away all of, of the rest, apparently, of his livestock. And this one person alone has escaped to tell you. Now, what does it mean by fire of God fell from heaven? Well, uh, it is presumed that what that means is that lightning came from heaven and struck the earth, struck the ground, started fires that consumed all the sheep, all the servants, etc. And while he was speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans, those are the people, by the way, who come from the area of Mesopotamia, or that is present-day Iraq. By the way, the Sabaeans come from what is the area that, that is now the Arabian Peninsula, where the country of Saudi Arabia and a, cu a couple of other smaller countries, Yemen among them, uh, this is the area they came from. So keep that in mind. The Chaldeans formed three divisions, or three bands, and raised, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So, so far, he has lost all of his livestock uh, to foreign invaders. He's lost his livestock to uh, fire coming down of heaven. And so, and, and, and get this, the livestock, you recall, is a large part of his wealth, the primary 
uh, component of his wealth. And then verse 18. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, Job is not having a good day. I mean, these things hit all at one time. Now, you know, I've had bad days when there's, you know, we got bad news or something's, you know, inconvenient is going on, and 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 then it, you know how it goes. It seems like when one one inconvenient thing occurs, something else will come along that's not so good, and that'll inconvenience you. And it really, you know, if you're like me, if you're wired the way I am, it really stresses me out. So when I've got one problem, I can usually deal with that. But when I've got two or three going on at one time, that gets that gets to me. But now, you know. I haven't had, I've never, that I can recall, had anything happen uh, at this level, to this degree. And so these things have hit him, you know, just one right after the other. So wanted to point that out because it says in verse 20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor, chor- nor charge God with wrong. Now that's, that's pretty incredible, at least to me. And so it, it, already we see that what the Father said about Job is validated. There, this, this is a unique person. This is a unique man that has a unique relationship with the Father. Okay, and so the story continues. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him. And so now just reading between the lines, perhaps, and I'm not being dogmatic about this, but perhaps after this first attempt to get Job to curse God to his face, uh, when Job did the opposite, when he fell on his face and worshipped, perhaps, you know, Satan said, well, you know, uh, I'll try somebody else. And so he walks to and fro in the earth, going back and forth on it. And so when he presents himself before the Lord, the Lord says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? He does this again, again. And then he points out that there is none like him on the earth. There is something there that distinguishes this man from from all the other people. And it, it is characterized in this way. He's a blameless and upright man. He is one who fears God and he shuns evil. And then he adds this, and he holds fast to his integrity. So, verse 4, it says that Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And so that last uh, um, prohibition is lifted, and the adversary is free to go after Job himself, only he cannot kill him. 
So, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot shard with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do, not, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just you know, go ahead and get it over with. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And that's a very powerful statement. Shall we indeed accept good? Shall we, shall we reap the blessings? And then shall we turn our nose up and, 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 and say, God, we don't want any adversity. That's a very wise statement. And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, the next verse says, Now when Job's three friends heard all of this adversity that had come upon him, each of them came from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nehemoth the Nehemathai. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they had raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they didn't recognize him. He has deteriorated, if you will, so far that they do not recognize him. And it, it causes these men to begin to lament. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Seven days and seven nights. Now, we're going to read just the first verse here in the next chapter. And it says, And, and after this seven days, apparently, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, I wanted to bring that out because in spite of all the great things that have been said about Job, we see that in the end, Job is still flesh and blood. He is still human. He, Even though he is upright, even though he is a righteous man, he is not perfect in the sense that he does not have faults because he is like us all. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it is, there is still there is something that has prompted God to say that there is none like him in the earth. And so, again, I want to suggest to you that the testing is going to bring things to the surface. Well, now we're at the point where Job curses the day of his birth. Okay, so we see that the, the human part of Job is coming to the surface. You know, he's, he's not cracking, but, you know, there's, there's fissures in the, uh, in the armor, if you will. But nevertheless, and more importantly, there's something else about Job that's going to come to the surface, and that is that there is none like him in the earth. So let's just kind of go over a few things here that were, that, that are in the text that I think merit uh, noting. And number one, when this attack begins, I want you to notice, first of all, that what is attacked? Initially, it is the livestock. It is the sheep and the oxen. And this is the source of his wealth. This is his finances, if you will, or what represents his finances. By the way, it also uh, represents the, uh, the things that he would offer as burnt offerings when he was afraid that his children um, were, were, were going to curse God in their hearts. And so the source of these offerings, which is a very important point, and which is the source of his wealth, his finances, his financial security, if you will, 
These are the first things that are attacked, and who are they attacked by? Initially, Sabaeans, people who come from the Arabian Peninsula. That would be today, present day, Saudi Arabia and that general vicinity. So these are the first people to attack him. Now, later on, other invaders are going to come and hit him, and they're going to come after his camel, you know, and, and what we presume to be the the remnant or the remainder of his of his uh, livestock and herds and, and wealth and camels, typically, or what um, they are associated with travel and caravans and trading and this kind of thing. And so that's going to be. Uh, those things are going to be taken from him as well, and that uh, comes as a result of an invasion by Chaldeans, three divisions of Chaldeans, and again, these are people from uh, the area that is Babylonia or present-day Iraq. Now, also something that happens to Job is that his children, his seven sons and three daughters, are all killed, and how? By a wind that comes across the desert, a whirlwind. Now, what were they doing when this whirlwind struck the corners of the house and killed all of them as they were partying? Well, they were, uh, if Job is a man who is upright, he, there's none like him in the earth, and he's, and he's so wealthy that he's considered the greatest in the east, I want to, to uh, presume that Job fully understood where his blessing come from. He knew who the source of his wealth was. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? So he understood that all these good things come from God. It is inferred that his children apparently did not. It was his children who were uh, the beneficiaries of this great wealth who were reveling in the wealth. That younger generation did not, if you will, uh, acknowledge where the goodness, where the blessing, where the wealth come from. They merely indulged in it and as a result, or at least partly as a result, they were reveling when it, on a day when a whirlwind came and they were all killed. So, here's what I want you to see. That the first and one of the more primary attacks against Job was against his finances, against the source of his wealth. And that attack came from outsiders, from foreigners. And, and I think it's interesting to note, people specifically from the Arabian Peninsula, what today would be regarded as Saudi Arabia, and from people who came from Mesopotamia, Babylonia, the area that would now be regarded as Iraq. Then a whirlwind strikes uh, his children he kills it kills the children and these are children who are reveling they are indulging in the wealth that job had amassed now in between this also we want to point out that the scripture says that there was fire from heaven and we explained what that is presumed to be that is it is lightning flashing from the sky coming down striking the earth causing a fire so uh so huge and so big that it's able to consume sheep, servants, you know, and, and, and part of Job's wealth. And so this is all uh, part of this attack as well. And then finally, after all of this had not produced the results that the adversary uh, really intended, it Job himself was attacked with uh, pestilence, with pestilence. Now, up until that time, there had been a hedge about Job. And there was something, this hedge, in other words, was was something that the father could see. Um, and in fact, the father put it there. 
it was something that the adversary knew was there. Because, you know, you look, you put a hedge about him, and, you know, does he fear you for nothing? You've got this hedge about him. Remove the hedge and look what, and see, let's see what happens. And so there is this hedge protecting Job, and, and had been for some time. Now, um, in Psalm 34, 7, we're told that the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to you that the, hedge that is referred to was the angel of the Lord that encompassed Job and his family. But why was that permitted? Why did the angel of the Lord encamp around Job? Well, it's because he feared God. Because the psalmist says that the hedge or excuse me, the Lord encamps about around those who fear him and he delivers them. And so we know from the text that Job was one who feared God. He shunned evil. So we know, according to the scripture, Job had the promise of that angelic protection, that hedge that kept him. So apparently when the hedge is removed, it is inferred at the very least that what happened is the angel the Lord removed himself from the equation and then the adversary was free to move in. And so uh, I want you to consider this as it relates to us. And again, I'm going to... to to kind of paint this specifically for for those of us who are living in North America and specifically the United States. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I want to make this point while it's on my mind. That if Job was given a hedge of protection because he feared God, then I believe that those of us who fear the Lord and, and though the generations who have come before us who feared the Lord had that promise of protection, had that promise of the hedge, if you will, uh, furthermore, the blessing, the blessing that comes with fearing God and serving God and, and honoring God, and the adversary would be unable to to do anything about that hedge. Now, but what happens if you cease fearing God? What happens if you don't fear God? What happens if there is a generation that arises who doesn't acknowledge where the wealth, where the blessing, where the goodness came from, but merely indulges in it? and uses it to fund their revelries and has no fear of God, then what happens to the promise of the hedge? What happens to the promise of angelic protection? Well, it, it is at least inferred that that hedge will be removed. Now, with that in mind, I want to notice also that, again, that Job was the greatest in the east and that there was none like him in the earth. He stood out head and shoulders above all the other principles in in the world at that time, uh, mainly because of his uh, his standing and status with God. That he that he was an upright man. He was a righteous man. He feared God. He shunned evil, etc. But nevertheless, he was the greatest in the east. And there was none like him in the earth. He was pure in his intents. He was pure in his thoughts. He was straightforward is what is hinted at in the Hebrew text. He feared God and he shunned the evil inclination. Now, rabbinically, uh, it has been noted that Job's uprightness is indicated by the fact that he was from Uts, or we, most of us would say Uz or Uz, but it's Uts, and that, that Hebrew Name or the Hebrew place name is spelled with Ein Vav Zadeh, if you know some Hebrew. Ein Vav Zadeh. 
What's interesting about it is that it is related to the Hebrew word etz, which is spelled ayin tzare. The only difference is there is no vav there in the midst of it. So utz is related to etz, and etz is the Hebrew word for tree. Now, a tree or an upright tree is used to personify those who are godly, those who are blessed. In fact, uh, this is what Psalm 1 says. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and or in the Torah of the Lord. And in his Torah he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now listen to this very carefully, and, and think, of, think of Job when we read this. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So I want you to notice something. First of all, the one who is righteous, the one who delights in the Torah of God and, and meditates upon it day and, day and night, a man that we presume Job to be, he is like a tree, an etz, an etz planted by the rivers of water that is going to bring forth its fruit in its season. In other words, when you look at that tree and you don't see any fruit, never, you, you know that nevertheless, when it's the right time, when it's the right season, it will bring forth its fruit. But that is to infer this, that when it doesn't, when that fruit is not yet bearing, nevertheless, the seed of that fruit is, is still there. It's, in other words, something is contained within that tree that will begin to spring forth, bud, and blossom and produce when it is time. Something that outwardly cannot be seen, but is simply waiting on the right conditions, the right circumstances to arise, and then it's going to bud forth, then it's going to spring forth, and then it's going to become obvious. So something that only, if I can put it this way, that only God can see, that only God can see and can say, you know, that that tree right there is going to produce its fruit in its season because there's something you can't see that I do. It says his leaf is not going to wither. Whatever he does will prosper. And then it goes on to talk about the ungodly, how they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. They will not be able to stand in the day of judgment. What is inferred there is that the godly will be able to stand in the day of judgment. The godly will be able to endure the tests and trials that are going to come, but that are going to sweep the unrighteous away. And so here's my point. Psalm 1 doesn't say that the tree, the etz, remember it's related to the word utz, it doesn't say that the tree will not have to endure trouble. It just says that its leaf will not wither and it will stand, and it will bear its fruit in its season. In other words, it will be able to endure the difficulties and the trials and the troubles, etc. And so Joe, we understand, is a man like this tree planted by the rivers of water, that in the day of testing he is going to be able to stand, and furthermore, that when these 
when these rains and these storms come, actually those are the types of conditions that are going to create an atmosphere in which the seed in the tree is going to be able to produce the fruit that's going to be enjoyed later. Now, all that being said, we understand that Job is not a perfect man in the sense that the Messiah was without sin. You know, so Job is is a pure man. He's an upright man. He's a straightforward man. He fears God. He shuns the evil inclination, but he's not totally perfect. Um, not as innocent as perhaps we would have him to be. Okay, and in, 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 so let's just ask that question: Was Job as innocent as he claimed to be? Did did God really inflict unbearable suffering upon him for no reason other than to satisfy Satan? I mean, is that why the Father did it? I would say no. Does it make sense, you know, that a that a totally innocent man should suffer so terribly, and for all we can understand, senselessly? I mean, did God just allow these things to happen to Job just because he could do it? Now, rabbinical tradition, and I underscore that tradition, and that means take it for what it's worth. Uh, rabbinical tradition has it that Job kept silent when Israel was, uh, well, when, when Pharaoh was attempting to destroy Israel. And so that infers what? That Job lived about the same time that Israel was suffering under the hands of Pharaoh. Now, again, that's a rabbinical tradition. But anyway, the tradition is, is intended to suggest that because Job kept silent while Israel was suffering, that this is perhaps why his, his test came later. But beyond that, there's no reason given. So what could it be? Uh, again, this is how Bill sees it, and you are certainly entitled to disagree, but this is how Bill sees it. I believe the testing, the trials, the, the, the unbearable suffering, or, or it, it was, it was intended to bring about something. Uh, God obviously sees something in Job that needed to be demonstrated outwardly. It needed to be manifest. Something that was part of Job, who he was, who God created him to be. And what he created him to be needed to be manifest in the world. And so as great as he, a man as he was, there was something yet that had been uh, hidden. Something that still needed to be manifest. And so he would know that, that is the father, he would know that because he created Job. Now, again, Satan does not dispute that Job is everything the father says, but he vows to change that if God will allow Job to be tested. And so, and, and again, this is just Bill's opinion. It seems then that God knew something about Job, and that something Satan didn't like. And so, the adversary is going to try to undermine it, to, to prevent it from happening. He doesn't want what Job is and what the Father knows Job to be to be manifest further in the earth. So he wants to destroy that. Now, nowhere does the text imply that Job knows this about himself. Now, uh, what I mean by that is he knew that he was in, and he, innocent. He, he knew that he had done nothing wrong. In fact, you know, later on in the story, he cries out bitterly that he's being dealt with unjustly. Nevertheless, he later concedes that all of God's ways are just. And so what I'm saying is, 
even though he knew he had done nothing wrong, I'm suggesting that he didn't know that the father was wanting something that was hidden in him to spring forth and to become manifest in the earth. This is what I'm talking about. Later on, he acknowledges that what God allowed to happen was a just thing. Now, Job was not in a position, I don't believe anyway, to understand the enormity and the extent of what God was doing because his thoughts are not our thoughts. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. His ways are above ours. We can't comprehend everything he's doing. All we, all we can do is look at it from our perspective. And I'll recommend to you that that was what Job was doing after he gets into the middle of this trial. So I said all that to say this. I'm going to suggest to you that the tests that Job endured were permitted in order that it would become obvious to Job and to everyone else in the earth and even to the adversary that there was indeed none like him in the earth. In other words, again, there was something hidden within that needed to come to the surface. And Job had not understood that something hidden was being brought to the surface. Now, with that in mind, I want you to notice the speech that one of his uh, three friends that came to, to comfort him. I want you to notice what he has to say. And this, this can be found in Job chapter 11, verse 6. He says, and this is Zophar who says this, he says that, that he would show you the secrets, the concealed things, if you will, of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. So in, as, as Zophar is speaking to him and comforting him, he makes this statement and he he says, you know, I, I would that God would show you the secrets or the hidden things, the concealed things of wisdom. In other words, that God in his wisdom and the reason he is allowing this to happen that is not obvious to us. The reasons that the Father is allowing these things to happen, there has to be a hidden reason behind it that we can't comprehend. Because you are an upright man. You are a man who fears God. You are a man who shuns evil. And so there has to be another reason. It can't be that he is just punishing you for uh, just because, or just because he's God, he permits these things to happen. There has to be something hidden within this. And if he will reveal that concealed thing to you, this is what is inferred, anyway, that these hidden things would double your prudence. Interesting. Now, the word that is translated here as secrets is alam. And alam means to hide something that is underdeveloped. Uh, it, it can mean, for instance, a young woman. In Genesis 24, 40, 43, that's exactly, uh, it, it's something that's underdeveloped. A young woman. It's the same or the root of this word that is Alma in Isaiah 7 when it talks about a virgin shall conceive. And so something is hidden because it's underdeveloped. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it has not matured yet. And so it is in the process of developing. Um, this word Alam can mean an unknown future. It can mean the full course of time. Psalm 10:16, which is is translated as Olam. Olam means world, um, but Olam can mean like uh, forever, you know, un until the the end of time, things like this. And so this is hidden to the idea of hiding or secrets. 
And then, and, and very interestingly, in Psalm 90, verse 8, the, the root word can mean that something that is dormant, something that is just sitting there, dormant, but dormant in the sense it is waiting for the right conditions to come along. It is waiting for the proper environment, the, the proper season, if you will, for that which is dormant to spring to life, to bud, to shoot forth, and to begin to produce its fruit. Now, that is the word or the root word that is used here for secrets. So something that is in this testing, there is something dormant there that it's going to, it's hidden, but it's going to spring to life and it's become, going to become obvious. And when it happens, it's going to double your prudence, he says in verse six. So that's, I hope that makes some sense. But the idea is to, to again suggest that there's something in Job that this testing is going to bring forth and it's going to become obvious to Job and to, to everyone else for that matter. So again, it, it's something that is good. It's been hidden, but that good thing that's been hidden is going to be revealed in its time. Now, the rabbis have written, or some rabbis have written, that this has to be the reason for his suffering. In other words, what I just described to you, that something good in Job that is it is underdeveloped, if you will, it's dormant, if you will, but nevertheless it's going to spring forth because of all this suffering. They believe that that has to be the reason. So, they write that perhaps through the suffering of Job, that Job aspires to meet God anew, and so they apply it that this is, you know, in our lives, when we go through trials and tests and all these different things, and we don't understand why, it doesn't seem like it's appropriate, doesn't seem to be serving any purpose, that there are many times hidden things within us that need to come to the surface, that we need, need to meet God anew and see Him in an even fresher and newer way. And so, and when we have these encounters, perhaps the light from that encounter is, is going to cast a, a, a probing beam into the hidden parts of our being. And it's going to expose the things that aren't supposed to be there as well, but the things that we didn't know were there that need to come to the surface. And so perhaps by being forced, if you will, to come closer to God, we actually discover something about ourselves, something that we didn't see before. And so this could be that we discover ways that we have that are not so good, or attitudes that we have, or, you know, hidden things, thought patterns, etc. And that's all true. But it could also mean that as we are, if you will, forced to come closer to God, because adversity is going to do one of two things, it's going to, it's going to you know, turn you against God or turn you turn you toward God. And so assuming, you know, we do the right thing and turn toward God during these times of adversity, this encounter with him is also going to shine a light on God's purposes in our lives. It's going to be more fully understood what our purpose is. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the core of what I want this teaching to present to you. That if in the days, weeks, months, perhaps years ahead, if we individually, collectively, endure trials and testings that seem so unexpected, that seem so unnecessary, that so unjust, perhaps there is something that the Father is wanting to bring out in us, individually and collectively. And I'm not just talking about bad things. More importantly, I'm talking about something that He has purposed for us 
and is placed within us that needs to come charging to the surface for such a time as this. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Job here. Um, his name, it is believed, if it, if it comes from Hebrew, and in fact in Hebrew it would be pronounced Iyov, Iyov. It means hostility or hatred. And it's not that Job is the one who hates or has hostile attitudes, but that it is understood that Job is the object of the hatred, that he is the object of the hostility. Now, there are, there are some commentaries that believe Iov may be related to Arabic or Aramaic. If that's the case, then the entomology of the word suggests repentance. Repentance, turning to God. Now, Job is, is innocent, but he's not completely perfect either. And so, as we see in the account, there are things that come charging to the surface. Job curses the day of his birth. He claims that God is punishing him unjustly, only to later acknowledge that all God's ways are just. So, there, you know, everyone is capable and in need of repentance. So, you know, perhaps that is, you know, something to do with the name Eov or Job. And actually, if that's the case, then it certainly factors into the, the, the purpose of our message and our teaching here today, to turn to God. The adversity causes Job to turn to God in an even, an even more fresher and a renewing way. And so I suggest to you that there are those of us who've been believers, uh, who, who try to walk upright, who try to do what is right, who, who fear God, who try to, uh, shun the evil in, inclination. Nevertheless, we understand we aren't perfect and we still have need to return to God, to, to turn to Him in a greater way. Now, we, we talked about this a little bit uh, ago and uh, we'll want to go back and revisit something and that is that He lived in Utz, which again is related to the word Etz or tree. Now, it is impossible to know exactly where this is, but and and there are many opinions, by the way, on where it is. But you know, some say it was on, in the land of Edom, and therefore Job was a descendant of Esau. Some say that he was of other families, but all of them seem to agree that Job was not an Israeli, but was one who was among the nations. So, the fact that his children went to revel on what was inferred to be a daily basis suggests that Job did not have any support structure, if you will, to train his children in the ways of God. And the point, again, of this is to, to suggest that Job was not uh, a native Israeli, if you will, but he was one who lived among the nations. And that is the point, is, is if he lives among the nations, if he is one of those who was born, quote-unquote, Gentile, but nevertheless is an upright man, who one who fears God, uh, etc., then this becomes a, peri- a very important point, if you'll go back to what I said earlier, in that um, on the third day, Something that was hidden among the seas or beneath the seas, seas used to personify the nations, that on the third day that which was hidden began to come forth and it began to produce herb-yielding seed and grass and trees bearing fruit. And so I think it's an interesting point that Job may, may have been uh, someone who was born among the Gentiles. So uh, there's a couple other things we want to, to, to get into here. And again... <clears throat> Um, the the different attacks 
that came upon Job. First of all, we see that livestock, again, was the source of the offerings he made in, in the case his children had sinned. We also brought out that it was the primary source of his wealth. The fact that he was the greatest in the East evidently caught the attention of those who wanted what he had. Where did the robbers come from? Again, they came from what is now present-day Saudi Arabia, what is now present-day Babylonia or Iraq. Job's posterity, who were they were indulging in the wealth. They were reveling because they had the resources. They did not acknowledge where the wealth came from. They were killed by the whirlwind. Of course, fire from heaven consumed part of his financial security as well. And then Job himself was attacked with uh, pestilence. Well, let's let's talk about what that may have been. I'm, in fact, I'm just going to uh, refer to the McClintock and Strong Encyclopedia. Um, this records that from antiquity, Job's disease was commonly to believe to have been elephantiasis. I hope I said that correctly, or also known as black leprosy, and that a very early Greek version names this disease. Or, or, that is a very early Greek version of the Bible names this disease in the text of Job 2.7 as Job's ailment. Now, uh, McClintock and Strong also cautions that it may not be possible from the Bible text to confidently affirm from what particular disease Job suffered. I mean, after all, uh, doctors weren't there, and you need doctors to diagnose diseases, for instance, and, you know, so that's impossible. Now, the Barnes commentary likewise presents the likelihood of Job's disease being elephantiasis, or black leprosy, and that was common in Egypt. And it, it, it goes to it goes into it and, and says that the description of the symptoms and Job's recourse to attempt some relief uh, led commentators to suspect that Job's disease was indeed black leprosy, and that's of course distinguished from white leprosy. Uh, in addition, the definitions of the original language. Uh, words in Job that are pertinent to the disease describe a, a burning ulceration that envelop all of Job's skin. And so it's said that black leprosy is marked by eruptions in the skin that are, are first red and then they later turn black. Very interesting for something we'll bring out in just a moment. Black leprosy is marked by eruptions in the skin that are first red and then they later turn black. And especially with the limbs, the the skin will swell and it will become crusty and irregular and uh, resembling the hide of an elephant, and, and thus the name elephantiasis. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary agrees that Job's illness appears to be black leprosy or elephantiasis, and it also concurs with other other reference works that the original language word for boils in Job chapter two verse seven is not plural. In fact, I'm going to quote them. It says, rather, as it is singular in the Hebrew, a burning sore, Job was covered with one universal inflammation. Whatever it is, it sounds terrible. The Carl and, the Kyle, excuse me, and, and Delitz commentary also ascribes elephantiasis to Job, and it describes the disease and remarks of an Egyptian king who died of this same disease. And then there's one last, uh, reference we're going to read here, and this is what or, or how Wycliffe summarized Job's disease. It says, 
Modern medical opinion is not unanimous in its diagnosis of Job's disease, but according to the prognosis in Job's day, it was apparently hopeless. The horrible symptoms included inflamed eruptions accompanied by intense itching, Job chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, maggots in ulcers, chapter 7, verse 5, erosion of the bones, chapter 30, verse 17, blackening and falling off of skin, chapter 30, verse 30, and terrifying nightmares, chapter 7, verse 14. Though some of these may possibly be attributed to the prolonged exposure that followed the onset of the disease, Job's whole body, it seems, was rapidly smitten with the loathsome, painful symptoms. He, to the degree that he ends up scraping his sores with potsherds, sitting in dust and ashes. His friends barely recognize him. And yet, in all of this, it says that Job did not sin with his mouth. Job understood and knew that his Redeemer lives. And so, those are some of the points that we want to bring up about the story of Job because we want to go back now on the second part of the teaching and we want to, to bring these points out but look at them as having prophetic significance. And so as we conclude part one, again we just want to point out that Job was the greatest in the East. He understood where his wealth come from. Apparently his children did not. There was a hedge about him because he feared God, but because Satan wanted to prove to God that if the hedge were removed, Job would curse him to his face, God permitted the hedge to be removed. However, I believe that the real purpose and the hidden, if you will, purpose in the wisdom of God is he knows that there is something in Job that is just waiting for the right conditions for that hidden something, that good something, to come forth, to spring forth, and to bud and blossom and produce fruit. And this is his reason for allowing this adversity to come Job's way. So that the fact that he, that there is none like him in the earth will become obvious to the world, to Satan, and even to Job himself. And that what God has determined in Job's life will come to fruition. And so, the things that happen to Job are intended to bring this out. What happened first? The source of his financial wealth, the source of his financial security is attacked by foreign invaders from Sabia, present-day Saudi Arabia. Fire from heaven comes down and consumes the livestock and some of his servants. The whirlwind comes and destroys his children as they are reveling and then himself, he is finally attacked himself with pestilence and this incredible and disgusting disease that we just described. So with all those points, we want to go now to part two and we want to begin to to examine the prophetic significance of all these things that happened to Job. You're listening to Solace Radio. Now as we continue part two of, the, of our teaching, Prophecies from the Book of Job, we're now going to, to turn our attention to the idea that there are significant prophetic implications uh, for the believers and again as I said earlier specifically I believe anyway for those of us who are living in North America in the United States and so to to begin this part of it we we just we're going to go back and kind of recap a few things and one of those things is is as I said at the very beginning we have to understand that there's always a story or a, a, a moral or in this case you know some kind of prophetic scenario to be derived from biblical narratives and and this is one of those narratives that I believe anyway that future events are implied 
Again, in Isaiah 46, verses 8, 9, and 10, we understand that the Father reveals from the beginning the things that happen at the end. And so if we want to understand what is going to happen in our day and time, then we have to go back to these things that happen at the beginning of time. Because in there are precedents established in the beginning, uh, pictures, if you will, that are established in the beginning that are going to have bearing on the, those of us who live in the end of the age. And again, I believe that Job or his story has has those types of in, implications. Now, again, uh, the scripture bears out that that he was the greatest in the East. He accumulated wealth. He acknowledged the source of that wealth. His children, on the other hand, um, did not, apparently did not anyway, um, acknowledge the source of that wealth, but they reveled in uh, using that wealth, you know, to fund the, you know, their parties and things like that. The fact that it is believed anyway that Job was not born Israeli, but was born quote unquote Gentile, or that is among the nations, is very important to understand that uh, that might have contributed to the fact that his children didn't uh, follow his example, or at least it, it doesn't seem that they followed his example. It's also important to point that out because if he was born among the nations, then what uh, this, if, if I'm correct in what I'm trying to, to, to suggest to you that the story is really all about, and that is that something within Job has to come, you know, charging to the surface in the midst of all this adversity, then the fact that he is among the, the nations is very important for those of us who are living in the end. Those of us who are believers, but who nevertheless aren't living in the land of Israel, you know, we are, we have never considered ourselves to be quote-unquote Israeli. We've been Gentile believers, according uh, to the way we most of us were trained anyway. And so that's one of the points we're going to make here in just a little bit. Now, that is the something that was in Job that, that the father knew that apparently Job didn't really grasp. I, I think the same can be said for us today. Those of us who are believers, those of us who have been striving to walk upright, to, to, uh, to flee and to shun the evil inclination, to fear God. Nevertheless, We've been living among the nations in cultures that are not conducive to keeping God's ways and, and following God. Even those of us who live in the United States, um, there's something, I believe, that has been hidden within us, been concealed within us, um, that needs to come to the surface. Something that's been hidden that needs to be revealed. That thing that's hidden in us, in short, is the Word of God. Because all of us who were born again uh, were born because of the good seed that we read about in Mark chapter 4 or in Matthew 13, the sower, the parable of the sower. And we understand that that good seed is the Word of God. The Word of God is synonymous with the Messiah because He is the living Word of God. He's the living Torah. So that's what's been planted in us. And we have we have expressed that. We have lived as we know best as we know to live according to that word but I want to suggest to you that because we are living at the threshold of the third day and it's on the third day that things that have been hidden are made known I want to suggest to you that that seed of the word has been in us germinating waiting for all the proper conditions and the right season to come along to truly burst forth into life to produce fruit as it is intended. In other words, that there is something within us 
that even we ourselves did not know was there, that only the Father has known it was there, and that perhaps in very, you know, very soon perhaps, things will begin to happen as, you know, that will affect us as individuals, that will affect us collectively, um, whether that be the, the body at large or whether that be the body within certain places, you know, i.e. the United States, that is intended to, to, to bring to the surface and to manifest something in this world that even we didn't know was there. That the Father has all along known was there. Something that has been hidden, it is going to be revealed. And perhaps the adversary is wanting to make sure that doesn't happen. And so he's going to try to destroy and, 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 and with the hedge that comes down. And why does the hedge there, why is the hedge there? Because the angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him and he delivers them. But what if the hedge is removed? And, and frankly, we live in a generation, and especially in this country, where the younger generation, those who have reaped the rewards and the blessings and the, and the wealth, but who nevertheless do not acknowledge who the giver of those blessings, uh, is, those are the ones, that generation, my generation, are the ones who are reveling in our wealth, who are partying and, and giving no acknowledgement and no regard to the provider of all these blessings. And so, in other words, they don't fear God. So then can there be the promise of that protection? Can there be the promise of that hedge? And so, if the hedge comes down, ladies and gentlemen, number one, it's because we no longer fear God. God. But number two, perhaps it's because that there is something in side of us that even we didn't realize, that even we didn't understand, something hidden only the Father knew it was there that distinguish, distinguishes us and this is true for all believers worldwide, but distinguishes us from everyone else in the world, that seed and so that's what I'm getting at here and it needs to be manifest it needs to come forth now um well, we're going to get into that a little bit in, in more, a little bit more detail in just a little bit. But at any rate, the whole idea here is to take everything we've said about Job and look and, and look at it as being prophetic in nature, uh, and to apply the principles to those of us who are living in the end. So, again, I believe that what we're going to see here in the future, if as these things begin to unfold in in the world and those of us who are living in the United States, as it as it relates to us, I believe that the Father's overall purpose is permitting these things to happen so that it can demonstrate it can be demonstrated to us, to the adversary, to the world that 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 He placed within us, that that has been concealed within us, is going to come to the surface, and I believe that's the core issue that we're looking at here. Now, the fact that Job was the greatest. In the east, incited certain peoples to attack him. Furthermore, fire from heaven, the whirlwind, was leveled against his children and against his belongings. And then finally, pestilence came upon him. But in the end, he encountered God in an entirely different way, and he learned some things about himself. Some, some not so good, some very good. Now, Consider that Job, or the story of Job, may have ramifications specifically for those of us who are living in the United States. I want you to take this into consideration. The first attack that Job endured 
was at the hand, uh, hands of foreigners who were aiming at taking and seizing his wealth, which was the source of his uh, offerings, remember, and it was the source of his financial security. Uh, it contributed, at the very least, as far as the world was concerned, to his position that he was the greatest in the East. And so they attacked his source of wealth. They attacked his financial security. I want you to consider that our financial security, or at least emblems of our financial security, was attacked suddenly by people uh, who primarily uh, came from the region that uh, the ones who first attacked Job came from, that is the Sabaeans. They came from the Arabian Peninsula, or what is now present-day Saudi Arabia. I want you to consider that on 9-1-1, September 11, 2001, when the World Trade Center, when the towers were attacked, that was an emblem, if you will, of our financial security. And frankly, it had ill effects on our economy and, sh and showed the, the weaknesses of our economy, that just the mere threat of something so devastating can send this economy reeling. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that that is the pattern that we see in Job. People who came from present-day Saudi Arabia attacked Job's livestock, the source of his wealth, the source of his financial security. That's the first thing that came under attack. On September 11th, people who, you know, came from the same region, the same uh, peoples, they're the ones who initially attacked us. Job was the greatest in the East. We are the greatest in the West. And so I believe the pattern is there. In fact, I believe it so strongly, and, and this is going to sound crazy to some, but um, on August, uh, excuse me, on September 10th, 2001, the night before the 9-11 attacks, I was in um, Aiken, South Carolina, teaching at a church, and I was I was talking about the prophetic nature of Job's story, and of course not to the degree that I'm sharing with you in this teaching, but nevertheless pointed out these three attacks that came upon Job and suggested, hinted, that these same types of scenarios may uh, be leveled against the United States. And next day, lo and behold, I woke up to the news that the Twin Towers had been attacked, and of course we know what's happened since then. It was not too long after that that my brother brought this to my attention and, and told me about it, and I, I looked into it, and sure enough, found a picture that was taken on September 11th. And this picture is, is of a New York street. There are three policemen in the picture, and behind them, is is the ruins of the World Trade Center, and it, everything is still very, you know, uh, foggy, a lot of dust and debris in the air, and these policemen are wearing masks. But what really grabbed my attention is that just to uh, the right of one policeman, just off of his shoulder, in the background, there is a sign hanging from its hinges, from uh, hanging off the side of a building that had been apparently damaged when when the towers collapsed. But what's interesting about it, the sign says J-O-B. Uh, J-O-B. Now, I know that it had something to do with jobs. In fact, uh, the next summer, the following summer in 2002, I was in New York, walked to that street specifically to find where this place was. And it, and it was a, a, an office that had something to do with job placement. But I couldn't get away from the fact that J-O-B, job, also reads Job. And so it was as if 
this was confirming to me that this, that what was the beginning on September 11th and all the ramifications of that had something to do with the story of Job. And I believe that what happened to Job is and is going to happen to the, specifically to the United States. But, as I said, it's not just because that the children, the younger generation, and when I mean, when I say that, I'm talking about my generation and younger, have forgotten where the wealth, where the blessing has come from, but nevertheless, you know, indulge in the blessing and, and revel in it and have lost their fear of God. Consequently, the hedges come down. That's part of it. But I believe the bigger part of it is, is so that, like with Job, even though he knew he was innocent of some things, nevertheless, there were things about him that there was none like him in the earth had to come to the surface. That had to be revealed. And so I believe that there is something about believers that the Father knows that we perhaps have not understood until now, that that is going to be brought to the surface. And I believe that the adversity that is going to occur and is occurring is going to help promote that. I hope that all made sense. Now, after September 11th, to be sure, our wealth was not depleted, has not been depleted. It simply showed that we are very vulnerable, vulnerable, more vulnerable than perhaps we thought we were. But nevertheless, you know, we're still a wealthy nation, still a prosperous nation. But I'll suggest to you that our sense of security has been severely compromised as well. Um, just the threat of war, just the threat of, of uh, terrorist attack can send Wall Street into a panic. And so if another such attack should come, and I don't believe it's an if, frankly, I believe it's just a matter of when, but when that attack should come, it could, it could push the fears of many, and especially those who are in, you know, the wheelers and dealers in our economy, it could push the fears of many over the edge, and it has the potential, at the very least, to thrust the U.S. into economic ruin. And if the U.S. Um, is, is pushed to that point, that is going to have ramifications for the rest of the world. There's no doubt about it. So, the first attack that Job endured was from invaders from foreign countries, specifically those who come from present-day Saudi Arabia, or what we know is, is Saudi Arabia. They attacked his livestock, the source of his wealth, the source of his financial security. After that first attack came natural disasters. First, there was fire from heaven, which, like I said, it's it's believed that these were fires that were ignited by lightning that came from the sky. Interestingly enough, even as I record this, there are fires raging in the West, in California and Arizona and other Western states, that a lot of them have been ignited because of lightning striking dry, uh, uh, you know, desert regions and igniting these fires, threatening people's homes and and uh, threatening the very lives of some people in certain regions of our country. A coincidence? Perhaps. Um, but, you know, for years, America, and it, and it seems, and I, and I could be wrong on this, but it seems that, you know, over the last several years, these things seem to be cropping up, cropping up even more and more and more, cost, uh, causing more and more devastation. Now, that could be because... We're populating more and more of these areas where these things have always happened. Nevertheless, they are happening. Is it coincidence? Or is it because these are the things that plagued Job, that incrementally brought Job to the place that he said, I cursed the day that I was born. Now, 
after the fire that came from heaven and consumed some of the flock and some of the servants, etc. Then there came the whirlwind, and the whirlwind hit the four corners of the house in which his children were reveling. Uh, I don't think I have to, to, to go too far to point out that in the last couple of years, the last two or three years specifically, um, our attention, and I say our, I'm talking about people who live in the United States collectively, and but especially those who live in the Gulf Coast regions and the Atlantic seaboard, uh, our attention has been, is, has been piqued by the growing number of hurricanes. And not only just growing in number, but growing in frequency, intensity, strength, uh, how, how large they are. And so, you know, just a couple of years ago, Florida was enduring, uh, had endured four hurricanes, many of them devastating. I have friends that lived in one area that uh, had to live through no less than three hurricanes in one season, and 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 so uh, they they were they were going through it, and and many other people who were in Florida who were you know right in the face of these uh, hurricanes uh, suffered even more. But of course, we we're all aware of Katrina uh, and the devastation that that storm wrought, and Rita and others. But the point is this that this if if these hurricanes have grown in intensity frequency size uh, etc isn't it interesting that this is seems to have occurred after the September 11th attacks in other words is the pattern that is that we find in job is that now continuing we see the the foreigners come in attacking uh, the source of our wealth or emblems of that wealth we we see the fires, um, and now we see the whirlwind. the The thing that happened to Job, uh, another thing that happened to Job is the Chaldeans. You remember attacked his camels and they killed servants and etc. Three divisions of them. Uh, the Chaldeans come from what is now called Iraq, and here we are. You know, as a result of September 11th, we are in Iraq even as all these other things are happening concurrently. And if you remember in the story of Job, it was all happening at one time. Years didn't pass before these things happened. Just it was all happening at one time. And so consider at least the tape of this, uh, the time of this taping, what, how, where gas prices are right now and what effect that has on the economy and why are gas prices like that? Well, in my mind at least, it really began to gather steam after Katrina hit the Gulf Coast. But the fears uh, that many have about what is going on in Iraq, in, in the Middle East, etc., etc., have sustained these high gasoline prices. And as you, everyone knows, the price of gas is going to affect the economy. So, what happens if something else occurs in Iraq what happens if another element and component of our wealth is destroyed, consumed because of Chaldeans or because of what is going on in Iraq, just as it is occurring now? And then couple that with another devastating hurricane or two or three. What do you think is going to happen to our economy? It's either going to turn us away from God or it's going to turn us toward God because where Americans are concerned, rank and file of Americans, if you want to get their attention, hit their pocketbook. And that goes true for many people who are listening to this. And it goes true for the person who's teaching you this. You know, uh, that's just how our culture works. And we are part of that culture. 
And so, and, and I believe that perhaps that is exactly what the Father is trying to get across to us. That there's something within us that has been suppressed just by the sheer fact we live in this culture that needs to come charging forth to the surface. And what is that? It is that that He has placed in us that has been waiting for the right conditions, the right season to burst forth into life. Now, just one other thought on these these hurricanes and things. You know, a lot of people say, well, these are just you know cycles, you know, weather patterns. These this has always been this way. Uh, it'll always be this way. And 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 to a point, I agree. But my question would be, why are why is this particular cycle seemingly anyway? Why is this particular cycle peaking just now? It would be interesting to see where these other changes in weather patterns have peaked in the past. But at any rate, I believe it's not coincidence. I don't believe it's happenstance. I believe I believe it is because of birth pangs and the earth experiencing these birth pangs about to give birth to something. Uh, when, a, when a child is in his mother's womb, you cannot see the child. It is hidden. It is concealed. But when all the proper conditions come together and those labor pangs grow in frequency and intensity, it gives birth to something. And then that which is hidden becomes revealed. And when that baby is born, assuming it's male, well, there's my son. And my son has come, uh, has been revealed, has been manifest. Now, the last thing that happened to Job, as we know from the account, is that the the adversary appears before the Lord again, and he is given the he's given permission to go after Job uh, bodily, physically, with the prohibition against taking his life. Interestingly enough. Now we hear reports in the, you know, coming from around the world, um, but, you know, working its way over here into the United States of the threat of, of pestilences, you know, namely I'm thinking of bird flu and some other mysterious diseases. Um, so, and again, you know, some people would argue, well, that's just, you know, how things are. That's this coincidental. There's, it's, it's not really, uh, anything uh, ominous about that as far as you know in biblical terms but you know I, I don't know I, I would tend to think that if the patterns that we find in the book of Job are currently um, taking place in the United States or affecting the United States and you know attacks from foreigners against financial security, whirlwinds, fire from heaven, etc., then, you know, perhaps the threat of pestilence is something real and it has the same kind of goal in it. That as these things begin to happen, that the the true believers do not turn away from God, but the true believers turn to God and are uh, and meet with God and see God in a totally different way. And so that things that are in us that need to be uh, expunged from our lives. The things that we need to turn to God so that He may remove from our lives so that those things can happen, so that we can draw closer to Him. But for the overall and most important goal that the things that are within us that He has placed there that need to come into fruition, that need to bear fruit, that need to be manifest can begin to happen. And so the threat of these pestilences, bird flu, etc., perhaps has something to do with that. Now, interestingly enough, I have 
in my hand articles about some diseases that are on uh, that are you know beginning to make uh, their appearance in the United States. Of course, we've all heard about bird flu and and and, and what how that it comes about. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I do want to point out um, something though that it sounds kind of crazy. It sounds like something out of science fiction, but it is a mystery disease that is hitting uh, parts of the Southwest and parts of Florida, specifically along the southern border, which I find very interesting. And this mystery disease is something that begins as um, little lesions and uh, sores that interestingly enough turn black and out of these black specks comes lesions and, and fibrous growths that just pop out of the skin and there is a name for the disease that is being investigated most doctors don't acknowledge it right now because well for various reasons but nevertheless there seems to be some validity to it and I'm the only bringing it out for this point. It's it's something mysterious. That's something that hasn't been seen uh, for a long, long time. And in some ways, and in some ways, it sounds uh, very similar to the uh, the ailment that struck Job. Now, another thing that this same article points out is that leprosy, interestingly enough, is on the rise in the United States. And leprosy is something you know that we have not really had to suffer with here in the United States. In fact, um, very few cases over the last several decades. But in the last, just in the last few years, that just been an enormous increase in the cases of leprosy that are showing up in the United States. So, the point of all this is is to to uh, to say that. All of the things that we find in the book of Job, all of the different things that happened to Job, in some form or fashion, we are starting to see here in the United States. It's affecting everybody all over the world. I mean, it's it's not about the United States. That's not the point. But that's where most of you who are listening to this live. And so being uh, citizens of the United States, it's easy for us to exclude ourselves and to distance ourselves from these terrible things that happen around the world because most of the time these things don't happen to us. But what I'm telling you is that they are beginning to. And if they are, what purpose is behind it? Well, there are those who are unrighteous. There are those who have not took the counsel of God, who walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That when these judgments come, that when these trials come, they will not be able to stand. But those who 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 delight in in the Torah of God, who meditate upon his law day and night. They shall be as trees planted by the rivers of water. They are going to produce their fruit in their season. In other words, that that is hidden within them, the seed that is hidden within them, is going to produce its fruit in its season. That which is hidden is going to burst forth into life. And that they're with their, I'll get it out here in a second, their leaf is not going to wither or fade in the midst of this adversity. They are going to stand. They are going to be planted. That doesn't mean they're not going to face adversity. Now, this all leads me to this. What is it that's going to be manifest? What is it that's down within? What is it that's hidden that needs to be brought to the surface? Is it sin? Is it things that are contrary to the Word of God? Absolutely. 
all of us, I believe, if we if we truly uh, we're honest and we we have to be true with Scripture because the Scripture says that we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Do, are all of us in need of repentance? Absolutely. Every one of us needs to, needs to turn to God daily uh, to draw closer to Him. And as we draw closer to Him, we're going to we're, we're going to be forced to acknowledge there are things in our lives that need to be expunged. So yes, there are going to be things that are uh, concealed within us that are contrary to the Word of God and contrary to God's will that are going to have to come forth and have to be removed from our lives. But is there something else that is concealed within us? Something else that needs to be brought to the surface that is actually the the purpose of these of the adversity the purpose behind at least from the father's perspective of why these things are going to happen to us and and i believe that that is absolutely the case and as a matter of fact what we want to do now as we begin to kind of wrap up this teaching is we want to go to the book of romans and we want to go to chapter 8 specifically and and look at something that the apostle paul wrote rob Scholl. Uh, for my Messianic friends who are listening. Something that Rob Shaul talked about in Romans chapter 8, and it has everything to do with what we're discussing, that is, and uh, discussing at this point, and that is the revealing of the sons of God. So in Romans 8, we're, we're going to begin to read at uh, chapter 4, uh, excuse me, verse 14, Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him, if indeed we suffer with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared which the, with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, we're going to stop there and, and just going to kind of summarize what this is, is dealing with. First of all, and we didn't read this, but in, in Romans 8, Paul talks about being, being led of the flesh as opposed to being led by the Spirit. And he makes it very clear in the previous verses, prior to verse 14, that to be led by the flesh results in death, to be led by the Spirit results in life. To be led by the flesh, to, to follow the flesh, uh, to be subjected to, to the carnal mind, he says, is enmity with God. And he even says that to to be led by the flesh, to 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 follow this carnal mind, 
is not to be subject to the law of God or the Torah of God, nor indeed can be. In fact, that's verse 7. So to be led by the flesh, to give in to the flesh, to follow the carnal mind, is to oppose the law or the Torah of God, to go against what God says in his instructions. So if that's the case, then the, the opposite of that must also be true. And that is... To, to be led by the Spirit means you are going to subject yourself to the law of God, to the Torah of God, to his instructions. And that is what lends to life. So then, to be carnally minded, to follow the flesh, is to walk away from God's laws, from God's uh, commandments, from God's instructions. To be led of the Spirit is to walk to God's instructions. In fact, to submit to God's instructions. Because the spirit of truth is never going to lead us into something that contradicts the word of truth. And so that is the context in which he uh, he talks here and, and writes. But he he also you know alludes to the fact that even though we have been born again, even though we have been born again of the Messiah, who you will recall is the living word of God, synonymous with the good seed of Mark chapter 4 of Matthew 13. Even though we have been born again, you and I nevertheless still reside in a body of flesh. We still reside in a house of clay. And that flesh does not want to to follow God's instructions. That flesh wants to do what the flesh wants to do. And that's why the flesh has to be crucified daily so that we can walk after the Spirit and subject our bodies to God's instructions. Now, in Romans 8, he talks about that one day, however, one day, um, this this body is going to be redeemed itself. And he says, in fact, we're, we're hoping for something. And he, he makes mention of the fact that the very fact that we're hoping for something means that, number one, we expect it to happen, but we haven't seen it yet. It's something that is in the future. And in context, what he's talking about in verses 23, 24, and 25 is the redemption of our body, this body of flesh, this thing here that about us that's carnal, that doesn't want to keep God's commandments, follow God's ways. That's what we have to battle every day. There's coming a day that they were hoping for when this body is redeemed as well. And though no longer do we have this struggle going on all the time. And we are groaning within ourselves for that day to occur because you see, when we were born again, the word, the seed, the Messiah, was planted in us. And we were born again, but we have still had to struggle with the carnal nature. But there is a day when that seed that was planted in us is going to burst forth into fruitfulness in the way that it was always supposed to. So, in, in other words, what I'm saying is this. I was born again many years ago. But I have continued to have to suppress the flesh and, and to battle the carnal nature, even though I was born again. There is coming a day when that will be changed, when this corruption will put on incorruption, this mortal will put on immortality, when even though it, it says, the scripture says, it has not yet been revealed in us what we shall be, but when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, when this mortal puts on immortality. We, we have had this seed that brings about this change in us all the time. But to some degree, 
please understand me, to some degree, it has been lying dormant. It has been waiting for the proper conditions and the appropriate season for what has been hidden in us to burst forth into life and to become manifest in the world and to show the adversary, to show the world, and even prove to ourselves who we truly are. Now, Paul talks about the fact that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. We are those who have received him, and consequently he has given us the, the power and ability to become the sons of God. We are those who are being uh, conformed to the image of the Son of God. And yet we are still those who struggle with our flesh from time to time. So this is this is what we're talking about. Something that's been in us, it is in us. It has caused us to be born again. And nevertheless, it is not manifest fully, completely, in the way that the Father intends. It is encased, if you will, hidden beneath this, uh, this body of flesh. But one day it's going to be manifest. And so that the seed that is in me is going to produce that fruit. Now, going back, going all the way back to something we talked about at the very beginning, and that is this, that in Scripture there are many examples, and I gave you one, that things that are hidden are typically revealed on the third day. Um the waters that concealed the dry land were gathered together in one place so that the dry land could appear, so that herb yielding seed could grow, that grass could grow, that trees bearing fruit could grow, and all that happened, if you remember, on the third day. Again, remember that the, the seas, the waters, often personify the nations. And so the teaching is, is that on the third day, what is hidden among the nations will then be revealed. It has been, if you remember with me, 2,000 years since the Messiah was buried, excuse me, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And so, according to the, the scripture, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. It has been, uh, consequently, two millennial days have passed since those things have happened. Meaning, we're at the threshold of the third day. Moreover, meaning that at the, that this time, things that are hidden and I'm talking about hidden within us, hidden within the body, hidden among the nations, is going to begin to, to sprout, it's going to spring up, and it's going to begin to produce fruit. Now, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this, and um, but I want to stay you know, kind of on our subject matter, because what we've been dealing with is, is the story of Job. There was something about Job. That, that set him apart from everybody else. And what sets the believers apart from everybody else? It's that they have been born again of the Word of God, and that Word of God has been working on them, and, and the Messiah, those who have received the Messiah, who is the Word of God, and the Spirit of Messiah has been working on us and, and and helping us and aiding us to with our weaknesses so that we can be conformed to the image of the Son of God. But nevertheless, that is a process that is going to culminate um, when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruption puts on incorruption. And so we understand that it is a future event. It is, we are in the process right now, and even more so in this 
at the threshold of the third day because there are things that are happening in the body, things that are coming to the surface that uh, are, are uh, alluded to by what Paul says. But here's my point. It is a future event. It is something that is going to happen in the future. That being said, we know we are the sons of God because the Spirit of God testifies and bears witness with our spirit. And so here's my point. In verse 19, it says that the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, if we're the sons of God, and we are, and we are going to be revealed, because the revealing of the, of the sons of God, by the way, has something to do with the creation. Something's going to happen to the creation. Because you notice... It says in verse 21, it says the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, when the sons of God are revealed, it is actually going to release the creation itself from its own bondage of corruption. You see, we're not only, we're not the only ones housed in a corruptible body, but the creation itself has been um, has been subject to the bondage of corruption. And so this is why the creation itself wants to be freed. It's, it wants to be liberated. That's why perhaps hurricanes might be growing in frequency and in intensity. That's why earthquakes might be growing in strength and frequency, etc. That's why these things probably are happening in nature because it is manifestations of the fact that the creation wants to be liberated. It is, is, it is these birth pangs that are being manifest indicating that the creation is eagerly awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God because when the sons of God are revealed that suggests anyway that the earth and the creation is also going to be liberated from its bondage of corruption. So here's my point in this. If the sons of God, and that is us, are going to be revealed in the future, because that's the redemption of our body, we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, verse 23, when we no longer have to war against this body of flesh. If we're going to be revealed tomorrow, what does that mean we are today? Hidden. Concealed, Because if we're going to be revealed, that must mean that we're not revealed now, that we are hidden, we are concealed. As a matter of fact, this is something I, I point out to audiences in this teaching. We were hidden so well that we didn't even know we were hidden. That there is something hidden within us that the Father wants to become manifest in this world. He wants it to be to spring forth into life. He wants it to become evident. There's something about his people that even his people, by and large, do not see. They may see that they attempt to walk upright, that they fear God, that they shun the evil inclination. Nevertheless, perhaps they fail to see that there is none like them in the earth. And that's what the Father wants everybody to see. And so what makes it, what makes them like, unlike, I should say, anyone else in the earth, is that these are the people who have been born again by the, by the power of God, by the Word of God, and these are the people who are trying to walk according to the Word of God. And as sons of God, that has a very important implication, and that is this. If you go back into the beginning, you will see that when the earth was subjected to the bondage of corruption, that it was probably uh, 
Well, it, you know, there were there's some reason to believe that it may have started anyway when Adam sinned and the ground was cursed for his sake. However, in Genesis chapter six, you see that the sons of God came in, they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, here's my point. It's not to, to determine who the sons of God were. In other words, were they angels? Were they men? My opinion is they were exactly what it says they are, sons of God. But the, here's, my, here's the real emphasis, I believe. The sons of God, before they engage in this these procreative activity with the daughters of men, they represent what is holy. The daughters of men represent what is common or profane. The end result of this union, holy and profane, is corruption. It's defilement. If you read in Leviticus 19.19, Deuteronomy 22.9, and I'm going to condense this for the sake of time, here's what you understand. That from the Father's perspective, any time we mingle holy with profane, the end result is corruption and defilement. And again, I'm basing this primarily on Leviticus 19.19, Deuteronomy 22.9, but there are, is a host of other scriptures and throughout the scripture, God makes it clear you're not to mingle the holy with profane. Paul even talks about being unequally yoked. What does what fellowship does light have with darkness? It's all about the principle of, of not contaminating the holy with the profane. If you do, the end result is corruption. Now, here's my point. The sons of God, before they enter into this relationship with the daughters of men, represent what is holy. The daughters of men represent what is profane. By the time they procreate with one another, what is the end result? They produce offspring that are so wicked, their hearts are and their minds are continually upon evil, that the wickedness is so great that God is he, God regrets that he made man. And so he determines to destroy man and beast, creeping thing, fowls of the air. He's going to destroy them with a flood of waters, save this one little family, the sons of Noah and his sons. But you read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 and in verse 12, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but in those two verses of chapter 6, it says that the earth also was corrupt. In other words, not only were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men corrupt, not only were they wicked, the fruit, if you will, but the fruit was so wicked that it had the ability to corrupt the very earth, the very field, if you will, it was growing in. So the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And, and the Lord God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. Why? Because man had corrupted his way upon the earth. So I'm suggesting to you that the sons of God in Genesis 6, who represent holy, when they mingle with the daughters of men, profane, the end result is corruption, corruption so great that it had the ability to corrupt the very earth. I'm going to suggest to you that that is when the earth was subjected to the bondage of corruption. And since that time, the earth has been groaning with birth pangs together until now because the earth and the creation wants to be freed from the bondage of corruption. Now, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. But if the sons of God, who were holy, mingle with the daughters of men who were profane, and that was what brought the earth under this, this bondage of corruption, then in the end, it must mean that the sons of God, and that is you and I, must learn not to mingle with the profane. We must learn not to mix 
with the unholy things. We must learn to expunge those things from our life. And the only way that we can do that is to know what God calls holy and what God calls profane. And that, ladies and gentlemen, can only be found in the Scripture. And by the Scripture, I don't mean just part of it. I mean all of it. And so, that leads me to this statement. In part, what has been hidden within us, what you and I have not realized, most of us anyway, listening to this recording, is that according to Scripture, when we were born again, when we were born uh, again by the power of God, by the Word of God, and the Messiah who is the Word of God, then we were made a new creation. All things were passed away. Behold, all things are new. And and what I mean by this is uh, by that is this: how we're supposed to walk is different now, and how we're supposed to walk is not defined by denominations. How we're supposed to walk is defined by the Word of God, from Genesis one one through Revelation twenty two, the last verse of the Scripture. The fact that many of us were taught, if it comes left of Matthew, if it's Old Testament, then that's not really for us. However, many people are starting to awaken to the fact that, you know what, that is the Word of God too, and that is for us, because there's not one, excuse me, there's not two faiths, there's not two groups, there's not two sets of rules, there's not two destinies, there's not two gods, there's only one in all in all points, there's only one. There's only one faith. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. There's one, only one spirit. And so there's only one set of instructions. Now, for many of us, that's it's, it's kind of you know hard to think about. But let's say that things begin to happen. Adversity begins to come. Trials begin to, to, uh, to occur and to become manifest. If you are truly a believer, if you're truly one of these sons of God that Paul refers to, it should these things should not chase us away from God, but cause us to turn to God. And to turn to God more implies repentance and allowing a light to shine into us and to expose those things that he is not pleased with, yes. To expunge those things from our lives. And that's only going to be done by the Word of God. But it's also going to show us who we truly truly are something that is within us and has been within us perhaps it's been lying dormant but now it's going to spring forth into life and so then in the end the sons of God the true sons of God are going to have to learn what not to mingle with to, and they're going to have to learn what to expunge from our lives according to God's Torah according to God's instruction which is by the way God's word. And so when I said earlier that that seed has been in us, but to some extent it's been lying dormant, is to say that we have not, many of us anyway, have not been aware that God's laws, God's commandments are for us. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with justification because we are justified by the blood of Messiah, period. But it does have to do with walking in obedience because the disobedience of the sons of God in Genesis 6 was at least partially responsible for the earth being subjected to the bondage of corruption. And since then, you know, we have been living in this corruptible body. But we are anticipating a day when we see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But what do we do in the meantime? 
Do we just go on as things always were? And do we, when we see adversity arise, do we just continue as we always have? Or is the Father going to permit adversity to come to cause us to take stock in what kind of a life we're living? Is He going to shine a light into our, our lives to permit us to see things maybe some of us don't want to see? But more importantly, to see something that He does want us to see. And that is who we truly are. Who we really are as, in, as believers in Messiah and what the responsibility of knowing who we are, what that responsibility is. To walk according to his instructions. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in this particular country, in the United States of America, there is such a vast cross-section of cultures, languages, races, etc. And amongst all these groups, there are people who believe in the Messiah. And his people are, are, are from all the nations. And if you remember at the very beginning, at the very beginning we made the point that on the third day, something that has been hidden among the nations is going to begin to spring forth into life. Now, as we begin to close, let me just kind of underscore that point very quickly. In the book of Esther, there is a story, well, it is a story of a young Jewish woman by the name of Hadassah who becomes the the queen of Persia and she takes on the name of Esther. Now Esther is not a Jewish name, it's not a Hebrew name, it is a Gentile name. In fact it's a Gentile name associated with the goddess of fertility, Astarte or Ishtar, also known as Easter. But here's my point. Why did she become Esther? It was purpose. It was, the purpose behind it was that the father hid her among the nations, if you will, hid her, hid Hadassah under the persona of Esther. Why? So that for such a time as this, she might be revealed. And her revealing would lead to this, that all Israel might be saved. Another example is Joseph. And we have a, a very extensive teaching on this called the Joseph Factors on DVD right now, parts one and two. But Joseph is one who was hid among the nations. He was hid in what was then the most powerful nation on earth. And how was he hid? Well, outwardly he was made to look like an Egyptian. He spoke as an Egyptian. He functioned as an Egyptian. Nevertheless, on the inside he was still a son of Israel. But when adversity came, seven years of lack, seven years of famine, his brothers were forced to go looking for bread. And all of a sudden, he found himself in, in a situation where his brothers were kneeling before him, just as the dreams had foretold. And he begins to reveal himself to them. But he doesn't do it, notice, on their first visit. He doesn't do it on their second visit. He does it, he, he reveals himself on the third visit, the third time they encounter one another. Now, here's my point. It wasn't the first day that he encountered them. It wasn't on the second day that he encountered them. But it was on the third day that he encountered them that he then revealed his true identity. That that was hidden was made known. That that was secret was revealed. And so once again, we have examples in the scripture of where things that are hidden among the nations are revealed on the third day. And so everything I've set up to this point leads me to this one. You and I, when we were born in whatever nation it was, presumably outside of the land of Israel, 
You and I were born among the nations. We were born among the Gentiles. But at some point in our life, we received a seed. We received the Word of God. We received the Messiah, who is the Word of God. And we were born again. And the Scripture makes it very clear. Ephesians 2, Romans 11, Galatians 3, just to name a few. That when we were born again, we were born again as Israel. We were brought into the covenant that God made with Israel. So then, as as partakers of this covenant, um, members, fellow members, fellow citizens with the household of God, because of what the Messiah has done for us, we should begin to behave like Israel, like the sons of God, as is described by the Scripture. The, the Messiah said, "If we, if you love me, keep my commandments." And and so my point is this: is that I believe we're living in a day. We're living at the threshold of the third day. We're living in a time where it's becoming more and more obvious that you and I, as believers in Messiah, not because of who our father was, not because of who our mother was, but because of who the Messiah is, that you and I are members of Israel. We do not displace the natural branches. We do not replace the natural branches, but we have a place with them in Israel as partakers of the covenant that God made with Israel. And again, this is all accomplished through the Messiah. So, is it possible that this is what has been hidden within us? It's been there all along, but we just didn't realize it. And we're living in a day when many people are beginning to realize that. But, but nevertheless, the, the, the majority, I'd say the large majority of believers in Messiah don't see this. They don't see that about themselves. Could it be that as the adversity intensifies, as the frequency of these trials uh, uh, increases, as these things begin to happen, that we as a whole will begin to turn to God in a way that we've never experienced? And, and as we do that, things about ourselves, things that we need to repent of will come to the surface. But more importantly, our true identity and what the ramifications of that true identity are will come to light and that we will see our Father in a totally a renewed way in a more enhanced way and that 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 has been concealed within us will be revealed and that the sons of God will be revealed will be manifest in the earth and ladies and gentlemen this will turn the world on its ear now I'll suggest to you that the adversary does not want that to happen and is going to try every way he can he is going to throw adversity at us individually and collectively why? so that we will curse God to his face but you see the father knows something about us that the adversary doesn't and he wants it to be made clear to the adversary but more importantly he wants it to be made known to us so that we will be that we will be provoked to follow after him and follow him with our whole heart to be everything he has created us to be and so this is all ladies and gentlemen all going to culminate one day in the Adoption, the redemption of our body, when this corruption is going to put on incorruption, when this mortality is going to put on immortality. That's the day, ultimately, we will be revealed. But I'm going to suggest to you very strongly that we are in the process, even now, 
of that revealing taking place. We are living at the threshold of the third day. And so things are going to begin to occur that are going to outwardly seem to us as as, as terrible, uh, horrendous, and even in some cases we might be tempted to say unjust. But ladies and gentlemen, I want us to try when these things happen to look beyond our perspective and see it from the Father's perspective. It's birth pangs. And birth pangs are intended to cause something that has been hidden, something that has been, you know, heretofore underdeveloped, but nevertheless is intended to be born. And when it's born, and when it's, when it's manifest, it's going to change this world. Now, we've spent about the last two hours discussing this, and we could probably spend another two hours. But this is, is just perhaps, uh, an introductory message, uh, to, to get us to understand that things in the world are beginning to happen and we need to understand what the purpose is behind it. And it's not just to bring judgment on the wicked. More importantly, it's get, it's to, to encourage and provoke the righteous to rise up and to be what the Father has created us to be. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed this teaching. I hope that you've benefited from it. And I'm sure that, at least for some, it's merely going to provoke you uh, to to look at some other passages of Scripture, perhaps some things that I never said. Uh, perhaps the Spirit of God you know, brought them to your attention and, and, and provoked you to go looking at some other things. I hope that is all true. But nevertheless, I hope that something that's been said has been beneficial for you, it's been encouraging for you, and at the very least provoked you to think. But we're going to close for now, and I just want to say bless you. Hope uh, that we see you again soon sometime in the future. I uh, want to thank you for obtaining these teachings, and that in everything, uh, in, in all parts of your life, that the Father will bless you, and the Father will challenge you, and the Father will sustain you. In Yeshua's name, God bless you. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it, and it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now, back to our program.